They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Aaron and I'm your host, a really special guest today. Uh, I have gotten uh, more requests to have him on than, than just about anybody else. Uh, Gerard Casey, uh, doctor of philosophy, libertarian philosopher. Uh, he's written a lot of books. He wrote a book on libertarian anarchy and, uh, he's, he's over the last three or four years written, um, in addition to releasing freedom's progress, which is a history of political thought, uh, a few years ago, uh, he's written three books that kind of started, he says, um, as one project, but his, uh, his, uh, publisher had other thoughts about, uh, one, uh, big project. So, uh, he released them as kind of a trilogy called hidden agenda after me too, and a book called zap. And the subtitle of zap is free speech and tolerance in the light of the zero aggression principle. We talk a lot about that. We get into the history of political thought specifically the idea, uh, of Liberty. And uh, he, he was just very forthcoming. I, I said, uh, Dr. Casey, how much time do you have? And uh, he said, well, I've had my dinner. We can talk all night. So uh, I hope I didn't um, impose on him. I hope I didn't talk, uh, have him talking too much, but I was just so very interested in what he had to say and just uh, uh, how he says it. Such a classy and smart guy. Uh, I can say that uh, he's the first for those of you who are listening to this and not watching the video version on YouTube or Facebook. He's the first and probably only guest ever on decentralized revolution to show up in a suit and tie. Uh, and again, mind you, this is after he's had his dinner at home, he, he put on a suit and tie to, to talk to us. So, uh, I just really appreciate that. And, uh, I know you'll enjoy our talk. Gerard Casey, welcome to decentralized revolution. Thank you very much, Aaron. Happy to be here. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. You're one of my most uh, requested guests over the last uh, little bit. And I was happy to see uh, when I emailed you to ask you to be on the show, uh, your response uh, said, with a name like Decentralized Revolution, how could I possibly say no? So uh, uh, a man, uh, we have some similar sympathies and uh, there's so much to talk about uh, in what you've been doing. You've been pretty uh, uh, prolific uh, the last five years or so. And of course, Freedom's Progress probably took you a lot longer, but that I think came out in 2017. And I want to talk about that book a little bit um, or maybe even a lot, but 
looking at the last three books, uh, I think they're the last three that you've uh, published. It seems to me from hearing you talk about them in other places, and I've, I got to read just a little bit uh, about and in them. Um, it, it, it's kind of a trilogy to me. It kind of holds together and uh, talking about kind of some trends that are going on. So let's go backwards. Let's go with the most recent one first. I think I have the order correct. Um, tell me your most recent uh, uh, book, what it's about, and, and why you decided to write it. So my most recent book is called Hidden Agenda. Uh, A-G-E-N-D-E-R. There's a little pun there for those who don't get it. Um, but but maybe I could take pick up a point that you've made, which is in the sense that the last three books really are all part of the same research project. And um, since, I, you know, when you start a project like this, you have no idea where it's going to go or how big it's going to be. And then it, it started to look gigantic. And I thought I better break this up into kind of coherent units, besides which my publisher was going to send out a hit squad <laughs> if I came back with another book the size of Freedom's Progress. Right. <laughs> so uh, I... Was I'm concerned, yeah, they're, they're, they all deal with sort of current issues. And so they broke up into three parts. Zap, which came out in 2019, looks at the issues of free speech and tolerance and diversity, inclusion, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, that, so that, that was a kind of coherent pile. And then the kind of feminism um, after Me Too stuff made up another pile, and that came out in 2020. Um, and then that left the transgender one, which was the least uh, inviting <laughs> for lots of reasons, kind of left to the last. And that came out in March. And that's well, the end of the project. Well, uh, why did we, it's seemingly within the last few years that um, transgender issues went from, uh, I suppose if you would graph like the instance of the word in like the New York Times or the Associated Press, you know, the graph would be like this for a hundred years. And then a few years ago, it like all of a sudden it's being talked about um, incessantly. And uh, why, why is that? Uh, th my short answer is, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. In fact, one of, one of my regular comments when I talk about this or write about it is is to say is to say that the speed at which this has moved from being something totally bizarre uh, to being almost the new orthodoxy has been bewildering. I mean, if you think about it in the terms of other things, for example, in, in, let's take homosexuality and its uh, its decriminalization and its sort of more or less um, widespread acceptance, at least legally, if not morally, that took probably in the region of something close to 80 to 70 to 80 years. Um, you know, the feminism stuff starting off in the 60s with second wave feminism, again, takes about maybe 30 to 40 years to kind of move from niche to kind of mainstream. But the transgender stuff moved from kind of niche to mainstream in what, five years? Yeah. It's absolutely bewildering. I, I, I simply don't know how to explain it. Well, I, I, to me, my gut is that it is kind of a, of a piece with the, with the things you mentioned, uh, because, uh, I don't know, left it like Jeff Dice talks about a lot about the fact that the left is serious, right? Like they have an agenda, um, and they will push it and they, you know, conservatives, at least in this country, um, 
you know, the, the, if you look at what conservatives now believe today and defend 10, 15 years ago, that's what they were trying to rile their base up about. But now they, uh, uh, now they defend it. So, and, and that gets into like someone who's listening to this and says, Oh, you guys are libertarian. What, why are you worried about what people do uh, with their private lives and uh, sexual expression and things like that? Uh, but it's, it's more complicated than that. The reason why I would think you're concerned about it and, and others are is because how this all intersects with the state. Am I right? Yeah, uh, I mean, I make the point. Uh, first of all, all of my all those three books are written from a libertarian perspective. I come right out and say it in the introduction, so there's no question about it. And um, so, if somebody says, "What's your issue?" Say, let's take the transgender one. What's your issue with that? And I say, from a libertarian point of view, nothing, absolutely nothing. I don't care if people want to present themselves as as gorillas or chimpanzees or the other sex. Makes no difference to me as long as they're not violating the uh, the zero aggression principle. The problem there, just to take that last one, we can come back to the others if you want at some stage, is that it's not a question of what they want to do or say or present. It's what they are using the laws of the state to force people like me and others to do. So that... I mean, morally and socially, socially, for example, I come under, you know, people come under enormous pressure. And now legally with uh, with the very laws, uh, gender recognition acts, for example, in the UK and here and corresponding thing, executive orders, you know, presidential orders, uh, you know, requiring, uh, say, under Title IX, expanding sex to include uh, sexual identity or whatever, gender identity, means that people are now being forced legally to say and do things that do not believe that they do not actually think are true, right? And that's I regard that as a violation of my rights, if you like. And 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 therefore, as a libertarian, I not only uh, I, may I object to this, but I think I should object to this. I mean, again, I'm not telling other people how they deal with this. And some people may be perfectly happy to accept the idea that other people can change sex and so on. And if so, well, good for you. I mean, go with it, right? But it's it's the forcing of people like myself who are both libertarian and indeed socially conservative to do that. Uh, I find that really reprehensible. All right. Let me ask uh, a couple questions from the devil's advocate uh, mm. perspective and um, both, you know, someone looking at this from outside the libertarian movement and then some people regrettably, in my opinion, inside the libertarian movement are be like, would say like, how is that a violation of the uh, uh, zero aggression principle to uh, ask someone to just respect someone else's pronouns or to let them use whatever bathroom they feel comfortable in? What, why are you so uptight and why don't you see that as a uh, basic recognition of their personhood and their freedom? Well, once again, um, look, if somebody, you know, if Claude, thinks he's gender is female and wants to call himself Claudette, I don't care, right? Names are names. I'm perfectly happy to use the name. But when it comes to pronouns, your pronouns aren't actually your pronouns. There isn't any such thing. Your name is your name. But pronouns are a common property, as it were. And therefore, if somebody is a male, then the pronoun is he. And if I am, if I, okay, if I am forced to refer to somebody who is male as she, I'm being forced to tell a lie. How, That's my problem. 
what are you seeing? Um, you spoke of the the legal environment uh, and some of the research you've done. Uh, I again, I'm going to be the the dumb uh, uh, opponent to your uh, to this position. Like mm. no, nobody's getting fired over this. Um, well, yes, no, nobody's getting fined or put in jail. Okay, so they are. So what? Tell tell us about that. Yeah. So I mean, the the there's a woman called Maya Forstetter who in 2019 was fired from her job because on a Twitter, private Twitter post, she's basically said men are men and women are women. And now she's somebody who, like me, said, look, I'm I'm happy to, I, I'm not trying to disrespect anybody. I'm not trying to marginalize or persecute anybody. But I, you know, this is, what, this is, I think, is a matter of fact and so on. So she gets fired. In fact, her, she's taking an appeal and so her, her case went to an employment tribunal and she lost. And the employment judge told her that her views were not worthy of respect in a democratic society. Mm -hmm. no, sorry, let, let me make it absolutely clear what views are not worthy of respect, that men and women cannot change their sex. Right. That's a view that's not worthy of respect and so on. So she was fired. Now, again, so that's one issue. So people are being fired. Um, people are having their books pulled from publishers, uh, largely about the protests of the younger people in staff. So somebody, you know, when um, J.K. Rowling came out in support of this woman, she got blasted yeah. on Twitter. And the junior staff in, in, the, um, in her agents, agency protested and wanted them to discontinue uh, uh, representing her. And then the issue has to do, I mean, one, one of the more, more obvious issues has to do with women's sports. Now, let me make this point clear. Um, the only reason that there are women-only sports is to benefit women. It's not to benefit men. <laughs> okay. And there are certain sports or uh, activities where it doesn't really make any difference. So, for example, you don't have to be very physically strong to lift a chess piece. There's really no reason to have women-only chess uh, events, though there are those, okay, but they benefit women and so on. Uh, similarly, with things like snooker or darts, you know, what I mean, for example, it doesn't make a difference. But when it comes to athletic events, things that depend upon speed and endurance and strength, then clearly, if those are open to everybody, no biological woman will ever win a major event, ever. For example, there are about 300 teenage boys you can run faster than the fastest woman at the moment. Okay. They're not even trying. Okay. So, all right. So here's the thing. So if you then say, right, if we accept that you can legally change your gender, then one of the consequences is that you can now take part in sports, in women's sports. So there is a New Zealand uh, weightlifter who uh, weightlifted for well over, you know, for 20 years and then suddenly transitioned. And now he is competing in women's events and winning. Yeah. And I'm saying, well, look, I mean, I don't think it's nothing to me. I'm not a woman. I don't really care. But, you know, if we are going to have women's events, then the criterion for entry should be, this is going to sound revolutionary, wait for it, that you're going to be a woman, <laughs> okay, and and not a man. And that's the problem. Okay. Let's let's go back to the example about the, the woman who was fired uh, for that uh, tweet, men are men, women are women. So again, in my uh, guise as a left libertarian, um, okay, the state, uh, there's employment law, uh, presumably, and that's how why she sued under. Uh, yep. if, if she had been 
uh, uh, fired for for being uh, gay or or uh, uh, or for her race or something like that, the state would uphold that. Uh, mm-hmm. would uphold her position and say, oh, you need to, to, to let her in. So how, um, I guess what, what's wrong with those types of laws to begin with? And, uh, on one hand, and then on the other hand, independent of the state, what's wrong with a particular employer, um, uh, without, you know, w- without pressure from the state, uh, uh, telling that woman that she can't, work there anymore. I'm trying to get at this issue of in a free society, I think we would have uh, probably sports leagues where uh, uh, the transgender people could compete in what most people might think is the wrong division. But in a free society with no compulsion, that would be okay. Let's see how well they do as far as viewership and support. But uh, uh, again, how, uh, why shouldn't uh, what's wrong with private companies doing things like this? And then two-part question. I'm bad at making two-part questions. <laughs> what's okay. wrong with what's wrong with private people having these preferences? And then what's wrong with the government enforcing basic uh, access to society through uh, these civil rights type laws? Well, those are not, those are not only two questions. They're two very different questions. So I, I know so. it was a it was a really really bad set of questions. So, so let's let's take the current environment in which we live, which is a non-libertarian environment in which we have government laws. Okay, so like it or not, this is the reality in which we live. Okay, and therefore, um, what I'm saying is, in these circumstances, as a libertarian, I'm saying, look, uh, it's it's. If somebody wants to, if the state recognizes that somebody can change their sex, I think that's crazy because I think that's and so on. But if that's what they're doing, I mean, so be it. But the point is that has knock-on implications uh, for others. That's the point. If it only affected the people who are, if you like, uh, claiming to be transgender and getting certified as such, that wouldn't be a problem. The problem is it has implications for people like Maya Forstetter, who have beliefs. It has implications for sporting events. And by the way, it has implications for women-only spaces, like refuges and so on, who now legally cannot prevent uh, people who are biologically male from accessing those. So what you're doing is you are the transgender uh, ideological movement is harnessing the power of state to force people's uh, accession to certain beliefs and practices which they find objectionable, and they can't object to it. Again, this is not a question of persecuting anybody. It's not a question of discriminating, or you know, I mean, it's, none of these things are there. I, look, I mean, there might well be people in my in my uh, ever shrinking social circle who are actually transgender, and I might not even know. I mean, I don't care. I'm not, you know, out there with a torch looking for anybody or trying to do it. I'm just saying, you know, please don't make me do it. Okay, so that's the first question, right? That has to do with the current environment. Of course, in a libertarian environment where we don't have state uh, uh, laws on employment, for example, then your employment contract, your agreement with your employer is a matter of negotiation between you and your employer. And if during the the discussions your employer were to say, you know, in our company, we fully subscribe to this and we require all of the people who work for us to do so and not, or if they don't, not to make that public, then that's part of your contract. Right? And nobody's forcing you to, nobody's forcing you to take the job and so on. But everybody understands 
uh, what's involved in there. Or it might be another company which says, look, you know, you're here to, I don't know, sweep the floors or paint the thing. We don't care what you do in your own time. You can say what you like, think what you like. Okay. And that would be in a um, in a libertarian environment and, and, and that would be fine. And therefore, in the case of Forstatter, for example, if in that kind of libertarian environment, her company had that as a policy and she was required to, if not to subscribe to it, at least not uh, publicly to dissent from it, then yeah, she's perfectly happy from a libertarian point of view to get fired. Yeah, and, and I like this uh, 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 way of explaining things of how should we act in our current reality and then what if we were designing a uh, uh, a good libertarian society, what we would do, because I think sometimes uh, people, we libertarians do like to live in that theoretical uh, world, uh, fantasy world, not that it could not become a reality, but um, uh, it's libertarianism should also give us some hints on how to try to uh, uh, promote uh, the zero aggression principle to the extent we we can in in a society that prohibits that in a, in a lot of ways. Here's a, uh, an issue uh, in the transgender uh, uh, topic uh, that I think has some of those uh, implications for the zero aggression principle and just a lot of philosophical and practical questions. And that's the issue of uh, children, that uh, you hear stories of uh, uh, parents, uh, you know, a, a little boy wears a dress and the child and the parent at you know, it's a five-year-old and the parent says, oh, it's, it's a, uh, I actually have a girl and not in fact a boy. And so they might do hormone blockers. Uh, they might, you know, you know, give them, uh, take them to counseling that, you know, confirms this or whatever. Um, what, what's, what's wrong with that? If both parents or both, you know, guardians want to do that, uh, is there anything uh, wrong with that? That, no, that's a very good question. And in order to answer it, I really have to come back to the kind of distinction between where we are now and where we'd like to be. Right. be before I actually get to the specifics of the question, could I make a sort of very general point here? Because I know, sure. I know I'm talking now to a libertarian audience, and I think this is a good point to make. Um, very often in discussions, uh, especially, I mean, if you, you know, public forum, uh, as I've many occasions, you get the what ifs somebody will stand up in the audience and say what about the and what if, what if this and and, and you know you could get a million of these and eventually i say look i'm going to take 10 what abouts and that's it i'm not going to take any more all right so you have to say this like it or not this is where we are right we have to recognize this okay and in the words of of west side story you want to live in this lousy world <laughs> this is the world we live in okay and this is where we'd like to be this is the world where they, we wouldn't have state-imposed laws on these matters, right? And to get from we cannot get from one position to the other magically at the flick of a switch. It's just not possible. And I say there are two principles we should use, okay? Uh, in or, if we're talking about this, one is we should get from a non-libertarian to a libertarian position as quickly as possible. And we should get from a non-libertarian to a libertarian position with as little disruption as possible. Right. Now, those cross one another up. So clearly, you quickly as possible means doing it tomorrow. And then you have chaos. Right. But but doing it without any possibility of any disruption means we'll get a libertarian society in the year 7,493. 
Okay, so those are the kind of operating principles. I don't think anybody can get more fine-grained than that. Now to come back to your specific question. All right, in the world in which we live right now, okay, the state determines when a person is legally competent and not, or and so on. All right, so in that world, okay, everything I say relates primarily to people who are legally competent. When it comes to people who are legally incompetent, then the law will step in to regulate what may and not may not be done. Clearly, the closer you get, and that's generally, by the way, legal competence is generally determined, apart from special circumstances, by age, right? So whether it's 18 or 21 or whatever it might be. So let's say it's 18. So therefore, when when a, when an individual gets to the age of 18, that individual may make whatever choices that individual wants to make subject to the laws of the land, okay? Before that, they have to do it with their, generally speaking, with their parents' consent, right? And then in the current environment, we have child abuse laws, right? So parents may not do anything to their children, right? You can't toast them over the fire, okay? So uh, the question then is, whether or not what is done in terms of puberty blockers or hormone treatment or whatever it might be constitutes some form of approved medical treatment or whether it is actually a form of child abuse. And, you know, the, the jury is sort of out of this. I mean, my own inclinations are really, I, I, I doubt very, very much if, say, somebody at the age of 13 is in a position really to make a decision about issues that will affect their uh, their ability to produce children or to have children. I mean, this seems to be a right. This is not a question of like whether or not you go to a party or stay overnight somewhere. This is a question about what you're going to do to your body that's going to affect you for the rest of your life. And therefore, I would say caution should be the principle there. So that's where we are now, right? In a libertarian world, uh, then the situation is slightly different because here, clearly, I don't want the state poking its nose into the affairs of family groups. And my suggestion would be that by and large, unless what parents are proposing to do to their children is a violation of the zero aggression principle, then broadly speaking, there might be exceptions, this, there should be no interference by anybody in these circumstances. But then the question practically becomes whether or not what is projected in the case of hormone treatment or puberty blockers is in fact a violation of the zero aggression principle. Okay, and you know, you, you know, libertarians can argue back and forth on that. What are the uh, uh, most common uh, criticisms, and sometimes it's a mild criticism uh, of uh, Murray Rothbard that I hear from libertarians is that they're not satisfied with his, uh, uh, I think it's some places in Ethics of Liberty uh, where he talks about you know parents' obligations to children and children's rights and, and things like that. Uh, I know you've written a book on Murray Rothbard, and uh, uh, so we're going to take a quick sidebar uh, to. I want to hear your opinion on uh, on Rothbard's uh, approach toward children in a in an ANCAP society and uh, what you know deficiencies or or further areas of of study that that we libertarians need to do to flesh that out. Well, I think we have to be frank on this one. Okay, I think the whole issue of the, if you like, children. Let's use that term. Okay, but people who are legally incompetent, whatever that might be, and whenever that age is reached, uh, is is one of those kind of tester points for libertarian theory. And I have con I have 
frankly, conflicting <laughs> um, views on this. I mean, I, I'm not happy in my own mind that, that anyone's treatment, including Rothbard's, is entirely satisfactory. Okay. Um, I don't want to go down and talk about the dreaded topic of abortion, but here again, um, the issue would be, let me try and frame it in, 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 in one way. Look, either in, in abortion, either we're dealing with a human being in some stage of development or we're not. Okay, if it's not a human being at some stage of development, there is no issue. Okay. So any more than having, you know, an appendix removed is an issue, right? So, but if 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 what you're dealing with is a human being at some stage of development, then what you're talking about in abortion is homicide. And I use the term homicide advisedly. I'm not saying murder, I'm not saying manslaughter, I'm saying homicide. And of course, homicide is sometimes justified. Okay, the question then is whether or not um, in a libertarian society. Uh, abortion would be considered a form of justifiable homicide. And we have all of these kind of complex questions. Now, clearly the issues in relation to, uh, beg your pardon, the, the, mat the matter of transgender issues, hormone treatment or surgery, isn't as dramatic and as stark as actually killing an entity. But it's pretty high on the, on the scale of modifying in a serious way uh, their physical being. And the question is, does that actually constitute a form of physical assault? Right. right? And if the answer is yes, then not even the parents are entitled to do that. Yeah. And therefore, and non-parents, not the state, because in the libertarian society, we don't have a state, but other individuals, third parties, who generally speaking on libertarian principles, are entitled to intervene against the aggression by A against B, be entitled to intervene. So this is the kind of schematic of how this how this would work. I'm sorry to be so vague. That's okay. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a tough one, yeah. It's a tough one, yeah. Uh, yeah, because I, I don't think that, uh, uh, you know, something like allowing a 12-year-old to get a face tattoo or sell himself into, you know, indentured servitude for the next 50 years or something like that. I think that in an ANCAP society, we would all, I think we would figure out a way to, uh, uh, to try to prevent that. One last question on this, and then, mm -hmm. then we'll move on back to your books. What about again, in, in, uh, in Kapistan, as we like to say, <laughs> let's say there, that one. oh, you have, it. uh, in, in, uh, amongst, uh, we, uh, um, uh, uh, amongst us Americans, we, we refer to that a lot. That's our, that's our dreamland. <laughs> I like um, it. So in, 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 in Kapistan, there is a family, uh, a mother and a father and a child. And the, the child uh, at age 10, say, you know, wants to do something like that, get a face tattoo, uh, have hormone replacement and uh, sex chain surgery, uh, you know, join them, you know, sign a contract to join the military when he turns six, you know, whatever, something that is sort of an inalterable uh, thing that will affect this child and this child's body and uh, their their emotional well-being for the rest of their lives. One uh, parent says, yeah, that's great that you want to do that. I support that. The other parent says, no, presumably in Ancapistan, those, those parents would have some sort of joint guardianship over the child. 50-50, um, uh, how, how do we, how do we approach that? <laughs> okay, this I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to throw all these things at no, you. No, no, you're, <laughs> you're, you're you're incredibly smart, and you've thought about this. So I'm going to take the opportunity. Okay, to ask let me, you. 
let let me make the before I come to the issue of you know how we decide between the parents. Let me take the prior issue. Um, in in the in, in a libertarian society or in and Kapistan, I've got to start using that term. Uh, the issue of legal competence is established factually by the ability of the child to provide for itself outside the family home. And therefore, my attitude would be, if I'm a parent here, is it's my house, my rules. <laughs> okay, so if you're living in my house and if I'm providing for you, then I'm the one who sets the rules. Okay, when you're independent, and again, in, in Ancapistan, that could be when you're 12, could be when you're 14, but it basically means when you're living, when you take yourself up as an independent person can do it, then you can make those decisions for yourself. So that's the first point. I think that's reasonably clear. When it comes to issues of the two parents with conflicting views, then there, there are a number of ways you could deal with this. I haven't thought about this before, but I'm thinking about it on my feet now, or rather sitting down now. And it would be something like this. One way would, would be to say that when it comes to a major decision there, that either parent should have a veto if what's being proposed is radical in some sense. And therefore, in other words, you require the agreement of both parents if something is to be done. If either one of the parents doesn't want it done, then that scuppers the deal. There's nothing to prevent, by the way, parents having their own arrangements so that they might, you could think, for example, that the man will always get the final vote or the woman will always get the final vote or they'll get it in alternate years. So there's a lot of ways you could do this, right? But but I mean, I would be inclined to go for the the uh, the veto of, of parents on an issue like this. But, you know, we can, you know, again, I don't think that libertarianism determines how this is to be done because libertarianism gives us a set of tools to answer questions. It doesn't provide all the answers by itself. We have to do a bit of work and a bit of thinking. Right. And in a, in, in Kapistan, there might be one, uh, you know, neighborhood uh, covenant organization that, that, that has like, if it say, if it was a Christian one, the, the, uh, the father, uh, might have the, the, the ultimate, you know, the tie breaking vote, uh, but in a, a feminist collective or whatever, they, they could do whatever Absolutely. they yeah. wanted. Uh, speaking of feminism after me too, <laughs> feminism, patriarchy, toss, toxic masculinity, and sundry cultural delights, uh, cultural. Del <laughs> I like that last part. Um, tell us a, a, about that book. Um, it, it's more than just, I, I think every person most, uh, except for, uh, you know, sexual predators would agree that, you know, sexual assault, uh, uh is wrong. Uh, and I think sometimes the me too thing is marketed as that we're, we're trying to prevent sexual assault and remove the stigma of women talking about it. Uh, but from the title and from what I've read about it, uh, that's obviously, that's not where you're talking about. What are you talking about in that book? Yeah, no, I'm not. Look, I'm not. Uh, I'm not defending assault or battery again. How could I do that on libertarian principles? I'm just saying the issues are much more complex than they are sometimes presented. Certainly in the media, certainly on on platforms like Twitter and so on, which is really uh, not where you want to go if you want to think deeply about any particular subject. So uh, I try to um, cover a lot of issues here. I mean, I. I say, and and the the center the central focus of the book really has to do with male female relations, and the question is how does this work? Now, since whatever you think about the past, the 1950s and 1960s, things have changed radically, and 
some feminists will tell you that they're still suffering from oppression and the patriarchy is still dominating everything. And I tried to show in chapter three that that is not only not true, it's completely the inverse of the truth. In fact, it's men, generally speaking, who are discriminated against in almost every area, whether it's workplace fatalities or medical treatment and so on and so forth. I'm just making the point, this is not, this is not real. Okay, it's 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 fantasy, um, and so I deal with some of those kinds of things. Then I talk about employment again, and you know the gender pay gap, so called, which actually turns out to be gender earnings gap. And when you look at it, I mean, again, there is no problem. And again, if there is a problem, it has to do with discrimination in employment against men. <laughs> okay. Uh, the core of the book, however, and the really controversial part, really has to do with sexual relations between males and females. I guess leave it there for the moment. Okay, just leave the homosexual side of it to one side. And here, the problem is that it really has to do with uh, accusations of rape. And the problem is here is that for rape is correctly held in such horror by most right-thinking people that for a man to be even accused of rape, is to have a stain on his character that is almost irremovable. Even if, for example, it comes to trial and he's acquitted. It's really, really serious. On the other hand, if a woman really is raped, then it's really deadly serious for her too. So let's keep it all in perspective. The problem is, of course, that the definition of what constitutes rape has changed radically over the years. I think what most people think of when they think of rape is the sort of stranger rape. In other words, a woman is walking home after work, somebody jumps out from behind a bush, drags her to the ground and has forcible sexual congress with her. That's the thing. But in fact, that accounts for a tiny percentage of rape claims. Now, I'm not saying that the others aren't important or aren't significant, but they don't fall into that category. And in most cases, especially when you're talking about uh, claims of rape by a woman against a man that she knows or has known, you're generally talking about, how should I put this? I don't want to start any fights here. You're talking about kind of messy sex and complicated sex where the relationship has gone sour, perhaps was consensual at one stage, and then something happens and uh, the man says it's consensual and the woman says it's not. And now we have a case where in the nature of things, there are only two witnesses to what went on, the man and the woman, and they have conflicting stories. And the problem as I see it right now is that the Me Too movement with their mantras of believe her and so on, where the idea is that if a woman says X happened, then this is to be believed. And I'm saying, well, no. And then they say, oh, you mean it's to be disbelieved? And I go, no, <laughs> okay, I'm saying, when somebody comes up with something like this, a, a claim, it's to be taken seriously and it has to be investigated. Right? And furthermore, and again, I'm, I'm sure that if any woman is watching this, he's going to have a heart attack now. But given the, the basic principle of criminal law, which is the presumption of innocence, Right. And notice it's a presumption. It's a rebuttable presumption. It can be displaced. But it just means that if I am accused of a crime, uh, in this case, if I'm accused of rape, then it is up to whoever is prosecuting the case to demonstrate beyond a reasonable doubt that I actually have done that. If I haven't, then even if there is a suspicion and so on, then the, 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 the possible assailant must go free. 
And I'm seriously worried about the shift that has taken place in our legal systems where the presumption of innocence is now coming under attack. And that's really a serious problem. I'm not defending rapists. Okay, please, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm just saying we need to think very carefully about this. There are false accusations. And one of the things, by the way, that irritates the hell out of me is that uh, sometimes, okay, where there's a confusing situation, a woman can make a claim of rape. The court decides that, or the jury decides the, the man is innocent and he goes free. Does that mean that they say she's lying? And the answer is no, not necessarily. Because, of course, somebody can genuinely make a claim and believe it okay, and therefore not be lying. But the jury simply thinks it's not the truth or it's not the whole truth. But there are cases, and they have been demonstrated, where women deliberately lie uh, for various reasons. And in those cases, they should be open to criminal prosecution of a kind comparable to the sentence that a man would receive for the rape. So in other words, if somebody, if a man rapes a woman and he's going to get 16 to 20 years for it, then a woman deliberately making false allegations of rape should get the same sentence. Yeah. To me, it's almost like a, a, an attempted kidnapping because she's wanting to involve the state uh, in something that would uh, have the man confined for a particular period of time. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, as I said, it's it's a sensitive uh, topic, and I try to deal with it as carefully as I can. I, of course, be, me being me, I can't resist making a joke or being sardonic from time to time. But yeah, that's, so that's the really kind of serious part uh, of the book. The rest is is fairly straightforward. I mean, in the employment stuff and all of that. Yeah. yeah. Where in feminism, uh, feminist thought, which has changed a lot uh, over the years, uh, how do they get from... Uh, you know, women should be not treated like, you know, second class citizens to uh, we should always believe the woman and there's no presumption of innocence, which is a profoundly illiberal, dangerous uh, thing, as, as you just mentioned. What what happened along the way there? Well, again, I can't answer that question. I mean, all we can do is we can trace the events. So, I mean, if you go back to, say, the 60s with the emergence of second wave feminism and I mean, there may be some holdouts. I don't know, in the woods somewhere in Arkansas, right? Who think women should be walking around barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. And, you know, maybe maybe there are. Okay, fine. Great. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. But for most human beings, and I would think most libertarians, would think that all adult human beings should be treated legally in the same way, whether it's in the existing environment in which we have the state, okay, or even in a libertarian environment. In other words, nobody should be privileged. Privilege is a private law. So there's one group of people has a special law which gives them special privileges and another group has the laws against them and so on. And therefore, uh, insofar as second wave feminism is pushing for this principle to be instantiated in laws, I don't have any problem. I don't know many people who would have a problem. That's one thing. But we've now gone from making sure that women are not disadvantaged legally to advantaging women legally. And that to me is a violation of that principle. Okay. And then, so that's, so if we do that in employment or in admission to educational establishments or whatever it might be. Okay. It's also the case, by the way, that in law, and that's one of the things I demonstrate in the book is that women receive systematically lighter sentences 
for the same offenses that a man would commit. Yeah. And that's not right. Okay. I mean, I, we might argue that the, the sentences are unjust in, in a particular case or too heavy or too light. But again, given the point of legal equality, you would think that whether an offense, say, let's say assault, is committed by a man or a woman, it's irrelevant whether it's committed by a man or a woman. And if it merits, say, five years imprisonment in one case, then it merits five, it merits five years imprisonment in the other case. That doesn't happen. Yeah. So there's a whole lot of these things going on and so on. And then we get to the stage where we which is much further, where we now saw in the in the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings where women are running around the, the building, Congress building, screaming at people and saying, believe her and believe her. And I'm going, well, no, but don't disbelieve her, but listen to the evidence. And if there's a case to answer, then bring it to trial and so on. That's what we have a legal system for. It's not perfect. But if you want to show me something that's a lot better than that, other than, you know, trial by media or trial by screaming, then, uh, you know, we're going to have to do a lot better than that. Right. Uh, let's go back to the, the first book in the trilogy, which is Zap, uh, Free Speech and Tolerance in the Light of the Zero Aggression Principle. Um why, and, and you mentioned that you kind of started this and it's one research project that uh, started, uh, talk about maybe first the history of free speech and tolerance, um, uh, especially in the West, why that got to be such a, uh, uh, a bedrock principle of uh, our society. You know, for example, my, um, I went to college in the mid 1990s. And I had a, a two or three political science professors that were, uh, one was, uh, 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 I think he was an admitted Marxist. We called him Red Jim Walker. Uh, <laughs> he, had, he had been to Cuba. Uh, and again, this was, he had been to Cuba, presumably in the 60s or 70s. Uh, had another guy who was a, like a constitutional law guy who was uh, super, super liberal. But those guys, you know, were, were pretty radically free speech. Um, you know, and, and so the left, uh, if you look at the sixties and stuff like that, my impression is that especially, uh, uh, I'm speaking just of the American context that, uh, uh, people on the left, uh, that was a better, you know, the ACLU, um, they got mm -hmm. it wrong sometimes, but on a lot of things, they were really, uh, right and very, uh, uh, libertarian. So how did, how did they get to that point, uh, on the left and in, in liberal societies that, uh, free speech and tolerance was so cherished. And then basically in less than 50 years, <clears throat> that's no longer like, I, I can't think of one Democrat in Washington uh, who is like an outspoken uh, uh, free speech person in the way that uh, somebody uh, would be 50 years ago. Yeah, good luck finding that. All right. Again, I mean, that's, that's an excellent question. And again, I have no clear answer to that. I mean, I think, that, I think the phenomenon you've described is absolutely correct. And so we've gone from a situation where, broadly speaking, those on the left, and not only in the US, but also in Britain, for example, and in Ireland, would have been uh, free speech advocates, and sometimes of a fairly radical variety, to the situation today where they are the ones, if you like, uh, shutting people up. Now, if I were to be cynical, and why not, I would say that back in the 50s and 60s, they had an agenda they were pursuing that required them to be able to speak freely and to make their case. Right? <clears throat> but now that they have achieved what they set out to achieve, they want to close the door. Yeah. Uh, now, that may be, I mean, that may be just me being paranoid, 
Okay, but I think maybe there's an element of truth in that, and we see that very clearly. To come back to the, the first thing we were talking about in the transgender debate, for, very often, for example, so for example, in regard to the campaign to decriminalize homosexuality, that required people to be able to speak freely and to make the case and so on in an environment where it was very unpopular uh, to do so, and they would have been, you know, found it very difficult. So it was they they had to fight, and they used the the free speech free speech principle to to get into the media and to make their case. But the transgender ideologists aren't arguing for free speech. They're arguing that the speech of people like me, who do not find this at all plausible, be shut down. That's radically different. And so for them to ally themselves, if you like, with the kind of emancipation movements of various kinds that we've seen over the years is actually totally upside down. But I, 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 as I said, I can't really uh, give you a, a very considered answer, but I suspect it's a case that it was expedient when they needed to bring about social change of a certain kind, that they uh, stand up for free speech, and now that they've, broadly speaking, achieved the liberal agenda, they want to close the door. Yeah. Um, um, there's a term that we hear a lot these last few years, again, that we had never heard before. Um, microaggressions. Uh, <laughs> what are those and uh, why are they using that particular uh, brick bat, I guess? <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, the, sorry, I start, the reason I'm laughing here is that uh, Cambridge University uh, made an announcement about a week ago where they listed a whole variety of microaggressions that would be prohibited, including, including raising your eyebrows. No, I just did it. I just did it. And I do it all the time. Uh, I mean, somebody once said to me, Casey, don't ever play poker because your face is a complete giveaway. There is no one of my students who used to come to debates when I did, said she you came largely to see the expressions on my face when people made remarks because she could read what I was thinking off my face. OK, so uh, so the idea is that somehow uh, people have a right not to be offended. Well, there is no such right. Now, clearly, um, <laughs> in a libertarian society, uh, there, are, there are more ways of controlling and regulating human behavior than by gross laws. And indeed, a criminal law in a libertarian society would only affect matters of uh, personal safety and uh, theft and, you know, robbery, uh, theft and so on. Most of what, in fact, most of what goes on today is, in fact, regulated by conventions of various kinds. So... <laughs> Your speech in a, in a sort of in a polite society in a, in a society that wants to get on is controlled by, if you like, these uh, non legally enforceable conventions. So let's say you're walking down, let's say Grafton Street is the main shopping area in Dublin, and let's say you're there with a friend and you see somebody coming along and they're grossly overweight. You know, I mean, hugely overweight. You know, forty stone or something. There's like two, three hundred pounds. There is no obligation on you to go up to this person and say, my God, you're fat and ugly, <laughs> okay? And we don't, we don't do this. And the reason we don't do this is not because we're gonna be prosecuted if we do, although we might in the new environment, it's just that polite, politeness, not, we're not required to do anything in those circumstances, right? And therefore, I mean, when, when, we, when we engage with people, we regulate our conduct by all of these social norms. Uh, and so what happens is when these norms decline, Okay, or when people get sensitive about them, they tend to move into the area of the legal. So then, then, then it becomes problematic. So 
and so this all the stuff about microaggression is really problematic, especially in the university environment, where my memory uh, when I was a, when I was a graduate student at Notre Dame, I can remember the Friday afternoon sessions, which were, if I were to say robust, it would be an understatement. People would say things to one another like, "That's crazy! I can't believe you would hold such a ridiculous view." And nobody broke down in tears and had to be carried out for psychological treatment. You know, you just went, well, yeah, your views aren't so hot either. So let me tell you, buddy, how it works. And then you would go into the stuff. And in fact, in, in, in philosophy, at least up to now, the greatest compliment you could give to somebody was to take their views seriously and to offer objections to it, not necessarily to show off or to be captious or to demean the person, but to to allow them to express more fully and to develop what they were thinking. And you would say things, well, like, that's fine, but the implications of this are as follows. And wouldn't that? And so, I mean, I can remember even back in the 1980s being castigated by one of my colleagues in another department for what he deemed rudeness to a speaker. And, and uh, let me give you the example. Let's just show you how even in the 1980s we had the germ of this. So this chap came... Uh, from Germany to give a paper on a philosopher known as Meinong. And you probably wouldn't have heard of him, and I suspect almost none of the people watching this will have heard of him. Meinong generally rates a paragraph in a history of philosophy. And he had this <clears throat> extravagant kind of metaphysics where he distinguished between existence and being. And so he held that something like the golden mountain existed, right? And so anyway, this chap came and he gave us this paper and, you know, he went through the mechanics and the and so on and the moves. And I listened to it and it was all very interesting. And then when he'd finished, uh, I wasn't the first to ask, but when it came to my turn, I said, look, um, clearly you think that Meinong is somebody worthy of attention. In, in thinking of this, you're at odds with the majority of philosophers. That doesn't mean you're wrong, but it just means so. So therefore, there must be something about what he's doing, which you think we have missed. Right. So I've got the kind of ins and outs and the details. But what I haven't got from you is why you think we should be paying more attention. Now, I was, again, told I was being rude to the speaker. And I thought, well, I don't understand. I'm giving the guy the opportunity to say, here's why. And tell me so. So the, the university environment, indeed, generally speaking, the civil environment requires us to be able to express our dissent from other people's views, politely, of course, if at all possible, but robustly. And 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 that's and so on. We nobody has the right not to have their views unchallenged if it comes to that. There's a time and a place for everything, by the way. Again, you know, at a dinner party, somebody says something faintly foolish, which happens quite frequently, especially if the wine's been flowing. Okay, you would have to be something of a prig and you know, uh, socially sort of inept to start an argument about it. So there's a time, but broadly speaking, and the university is a place for argument and, and dissension. And, and indeed, in my own, uh, the class I taught for the last seven or eight years before I retired on anarchy law in the state, I said the only one, the only arbiter, by the way, what may or may not be said in this class is me. <laughs> it's my house. It's my rules. Okay. I expect people to be polite, but generally speaking, you can, you can express your dissent as robustly as you like within the confines of politeness. If I think people are going beyond that, I'll call it in. Other than that, go ahead. Say whatever 
you might think. And so now, however, we have this environment where people say, oh, my, I'm going to be triggered. I'm going to be upset. And I'm going, well, you know, look, nobody's trying to do it. But I mean, if you're so intellectually fragile or psychologically fragile, maybe you shouldn't be in this environment. Maybe you should be somewhere else. OK. And the point is that views, you now come back to Mill's point. I mean, views which you hold um, without being prepared to face a challenge are not really your views. Again, if I can take an example from the way I used to teach, I used to say to students, look, what do you think about political matters and about the foundation of politics and how people relate to one another and the use of force and so on is an important matter. You should think deeply about it. But what you come to hold in this area is your responsibility. It's not mine. I'm going to present the material in this class as strongly as I can to make the case for libertarianism. I don't expect you to agree with me simply because I'm here up standing up in front of you. I don't expect you to disagree with me. What I do expect you to whoever to do is to take stock of where you stand. And it is perfectly possible that at the end of this course, you will hold exactly the same views you did at the start. That's entirely your decision. But if you hold them without having examined the arguments against them, the arguments for them, different positions, in other words, if you don't hold them in a, in a deeper, more substantial, more grounded, more personal way, then I have failed as a teacher. And the students responded. I had people from the Socialist Workers' Party, okay, the extreme left wing in there, and we got on. There was no problem. Nobody objected. Sometimes the discussions got fairly heated. That's not a problem. Sometimes I could have left the room for 15 minutes and nobody would have noticed. And that was great. And students would say to me, you know, we went off to the restaurant and, uh, you know, we didn't leave there till six o'clock. We were talking about this issue. And I'm thinking, that's exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, the whole thing about, to come back to your question about microaggressions, is that it simply freezes what I may say. Anything I say, a gesture, a look, an eyebrow, a comment can be misinterpreted. Again, I'll, I'll give you an example. Once uh, we were having interviews for a position in our department, and this would have been about maybe 20 years ago. And the chap, one of the chaps waiting to go in for interview was sitting there and I came out into the, into the common area. And I said, innocently, I said, oh, and we chatted for a while. I said, where are you from? And he, he got annoyed with me. And I said, hang on a second. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean what country do you come from? Or I just mean what university are you coming from? Like wh wh what institution are you in? And even then you had that kind of sensitivity. I mean, sort of reading stuff into my question, which wasn't there at all. Yeah. Right. And so it inhibits discussion, it inhibits relations between people, it makes it makes everybody walk around on eggshells. Okay. And if somebody says, I'm offended, just like if a woman says, you know, I've been whatever it is, well, we have to believe, and then we have the case. So so for example, um, just to come on to the transgender stuff again, the student in uh, a university in Scotland has been threatened with expulsion, is currently under investigation because in a class on gender politics, she basically said, I think men are men and women are women. And I don't think people can change sex. And everybody said that's transphobic and it's horrible and, and it's hate speech and so on. By the way, they also incidentally said that all men are rapists, but that somehow wasn't problematic. Okay, And now she's under investigation. And here the punishment, the process, by the way, is the punishment. Even if in the end she is uh, she is not expelled, she's been put through the ringer. And of course, that induces people to think, 
I better not say anything because I don't want to find myself in a situation where I'm being investigated. Yeah. And I think uh, one, one thing that, thing that these people who advocate this idea of microaggressions would say is uh, uh, they they always they come back with this whole critical theory thing that uh, the fact that you and I are having this conversation and defending the idea that that you should have these um, uh, spirited exchanges in in university or uh, just in culture uh, the the fact that we you know expect uh, uh, people to use you know logic and uh, uh, you know intellectual consistency uh, they will say well that's the white patriarchy western you, know, <laughs> you guys are northern european guys from western culture you have these privileged positions and it's because you are who you are that's why you have these uh norms and expectations but because those norms and expectations uh of logic and things like that they they do say this they say logic is somehow a white thing yeah, and, and, yeah and we keep other people uh, down by by insisting that they are you know intellectually rigorous or or mm. or, or whatever like that. Have you have you done much looking into uh, the the critical theory? I think it does that is that the one that comes from the Frankfurt School. Frankfurt and, School, yeah. But yeah. I mean, well, I mean, that's that's let's not blame them for everything. The point here is that um, look, <laughs> people who make these kinds of claims, I don't know if they realize just how racist and sexist those claims are because what they're saying implicitly is that those whom they are seeking to defend are not able to reason not able to speak not able to write and it's quite bizarre it's 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 in fact it's really offensive and it also leaves uh, out of the question that Many people, myself included, <clears throat> have come from distinctly non-privileged backgrounds, to use that expression. I mean, my I, I grew up in inner city Cork, and we didn't have free secondary education. I wouldn't have been able to go to high school if it hadn't been for a scholarship I won. And again, um, you know, I, I won a scholarship to university, and you know, my parents could not have afforded to pay the fees. Right. If people had said, oh, well, you know, Casey, I mean, you're coming from a non-privileged background and therefore we have lower standards for you. <laughs> OK, you're not expected to be able to speak and you're not expected to be able to write. And, you know, because of your all of the oppression you've served, I would have said, basically, go screw yourself. How dare you? <laughs> OK, I I will make my way on my merits. I will be treated the same as other people. No worse, but no better than other people on my merits. It is quite an extraordinary thing to do. And I mean, I it sort of words fail me. I, I, I simply don't know if I were one of these people allegedly being protected, then I would be really upset about this. Uh, Tom Sowell has made, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with Tom Sowell, has made an excellent point when he's talking about um, the use, for example, of preferential treatment of minorities, which make the universities look good but don't necessarily have splendid outcomes for those who are preferentially treated, okay? And he's saying, you know, this is a left-handed sort of leg up and it doesn't always have. So somebody, for example, and again, I'm not, again, I am not making absolutely clear, by the way, that people from various minorities are incapable and so on in, in various ways. But there might be, if, if, you, 
if you bring somebody into an environment where, for one reason or another, they are not able to keep up with the work that's being demanded, then they will probably drop out. And that's not to their benefit. It makes the universities look good because you can now say, oh, we took all of these people in and, and, and so on, but it doesn't actually do the people involved. Good. It may do it with some, obviously, but then if they had the capabilities to do, they would be entering anyway. And then if the question is finance, then there are ways around that. But anyway, we're into complicated issues here. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to close off <laughs> every question. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think I, that, I think uh, that uh, these, people these people really are, really disingenuous. are disingenuous. I don't think, I don't they're, think trying they're trying to help uh, uh, minorities in the, in the short term. I think they know um, that they're I, I think they know they're being dishonest uh, because I think they're using this because they want to um, be in control of or heavily influential of the state. I, I think mm -hmm. they see this as a strategy, as a way to uh, gain uh, uh, political power. Is, is could could that be what's going on? Well, I mean, I think it's at least part of what's going on. And in in so they've they've gained traction in in politics, in the media, and in education, three main areas. And here, it's practically impossible to make any progress. And in other words, if I were now in, in uh, if I were now actually teaching, I would have to keep my head down. I would, I would be, I don't know if I could give my course yeah. now. <laughs> it would be, it would be, let's put it this way, even if I didn't come in for actual sanctions, certainly the, the non, formal indications to me would be that it would be advisable for me not to do it. And again, if I were a younger member of staff uh, looking for a tenure or promotion, I would it would certainly be advisable for me to keep my head down and not make waves, whatever I thought. Yeah, uh, I, I, see I see these trends, trends going, going even further, further than trying to uh, 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 regulate what's said in, in university or the workplace or things like that. I saw uh, a news story just uh, several weeks ago. I think that uh, it was some sort of minister in the Scottish government. Uh, uh, and if I get this wrong, if you've heard of it, let me know. But uh, I believe it was a minister in the Scottish government who said that the government basically should be doing something about people who express um, uh, invalid uh, political cultural opinions around the dinner table at, at home. Um, <laughs> so correct. it's, uh, uh, I think things are a little worse in uh, uh, Great Britain. I don't know how they are in Ireland, which is a separate country. A lot of Americans think that Ireland is part of Great Britain, but it's obviously <laughs> not. Um, and I may ask you about that uh, in, in a while. Uh, right. But how do we, this is going into unprecedented territory uh, with um, everything online. Uh, I see the government as having all kinds of data uh, to uh, uh, know how to come uh, against certain people. Uh, one thing I've, uh, uh, I, I thought very early in the COVID thing uh, my church and, and, you know, many others in America, they went to the, you know, doing church on Facebook Live or, or yep. YouTube or something like that. And it occurred to me very early. Um, and, you know, I'm a fairly conservative uh, uh, Christian uh, theologically and things like that. Uh, and uh, but our, our pastor doesn't, uh, 
you know, he's not like a, one of these Westboro Baptist people or anything like that. In fact, I don't even can't remember the last time he's talked about, you know, like sexuality, for example, but just imagine all the churches who may teach about traditional Christian sexual, you know, uh, beliefs, the government has all of that. If they want to, they can go look yeah. for keywords and stuff like yeah. that. And so when it's finally illegal to uh, criticize homosexuality or whatever, uh, they know exactly where to come. Uh, yeah. Presumably they can listen to us if they wanted to uh, through our devices and stuff at home or on the dinner all, table. All Somebody sits in the back of the church. Takes yeah, notes. It, exactly. So what do we do? Uh, to defend this uh, idea of free speech and tolerance. Uh, how do we do it intellectually? Are there other ways that, that we can fight against this? Because what I see is a lot of people when, you know, when confronted by someone who comes to their, uh, you know, their university or their workplace who gives a talk about, you know, critical race theory. And uh, I, I recently saw a video that uh, uh, was exactly that. And the speaker, she said, you know, we need to, she said explicitly that we need to use this way of thinking uh, in your organization to attack liberalism. And that just like, uh, like if I had been in the room, I don't know what I would have done. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 it, it wouldn't have ended well. Um, but how, uh, but I see a lot of people just sitting there and listening to this. Maybe they're not interested enough, not smart enough to know what's going on. Uh, for those of us who do see the danger to liberalism, what in the world do we do? I don't know. I think that's the fourth time today I've said that. I'm yeah. sorry to disappoint. Well, you, you're you're a philosopher. A good philosopher should kind of start from that process, yeah. right? I okay. Uh, again, let me take a practical example. The, the right now in the Irish Parliament, there is a hate crime um, bill. That is being considered. I made a submission with some friends of mine two years ago to this. We had a consultation with the Department of Justice. They've now brought out the draft bill. I wrote to all 160 of our public representatives and got reactions. I've made the point repeatedly that clearly, uh, what did it say? Let's, let's, so let's distinguish between hate crime and hate speech. If we're talking about hate crime, then the only difference, what hate crime is, is simply a crime plus the hate. And so I said, well, take two examples. If somebody punches you in the face and steals your mobile phone because he wants your mobile phone, that's a crime. If somebody punches you in the face and steals your mobile phone because he because you're from Arkansas and he hates people from Arkansas, that's a crime. But that's the same crime. The law really doesn't and shouldn't concern itself with the hate. Hate is a motive. But so is greed. So is envy. So is a whole lot of things, right? And therefore... The law does not concern itself with motives. It concerns itself with intentions. What are you doing in the act that you do? And so I'm saying, if you have a category of hate crime, all you're doing is you're criminalizing thoughts. Hate crime is thought crime. I think that point is perfectly obvious, and it's not a good idea. It's also counterproductive insofar as people who are motivated by hatred of particular groups are unlikely to be influenced by these laws. What are they, equal opportunity offenders? <laughs> okay. Is that what they are? Like I say, ooh, I never realized until now that it was right, that it was inappropriate. And I make the point, morally speaking, of course, hate, as a Christian, I believe hate is inappropriate. We're not, we're not entitled to hate people. I often say this really cramps my style. <laughs> okay. But, and so that's hate crime. Hate speech, on the other hand, 
Well, what is that? Well, clearly, if you stand in front of a total stranger and scream abuse at them and so on, that's really, really unpleasant. And it can actually pass over into uh, assault if the person has a genuine, objectively based fear that physical violence is going to ensue. That's already a crime. But, <clears throat> but if I disagree with somebody, and this is where we're moving now, this is where the hate speech thing becomes really problematic. If I disagree with you politely on your views, do I hate you? Well, maybe I do, but, but it's not obvious. So let's suppose you're a materialist, <clears throat> to take an example I've used in the book. And, and I'm not, because I'm a religious believer. I'm not a materialist. Okay, And so you make your case for materialism. And I say, Aaron, I, I disagree with you. I, I think you're not taking account of the following factors and how do we account for the normative force of morality and so on and so forth. And we have a polite discussion and you go your way and I go my way. Do I hate you? No. Do I fear you? No. Do I have an irrational hatred or fear of you? No. Am I a materialistophobe? No. <laughs> right. And, but the point is that the laws are framed in such a way that now even the expression of dissent from a view is taken to be problematic. And in the case, again, to come back to my book, Hidden Agenda, even to express the views that I have done is to open yourself to the charge of being transphobic. And I go, well, that's crazy. I don't hate transgender people. In fact, if I feel anything towards them, I feel kind of sad that they're in that position, whatever it is, whatever the psychological state they're in and why they feel impelled to do what they do. I don't, I, I don't hate these people. Right? I don't fear them. And I don't have any irrational hatred of fear. In what sense am I transphobic? But of course, the term transphobic, as we know, all of these phobic terms are simply used as terms of abuse, which are meant to shut down debate. So the minute you open your mouth, they scream this at you. And so people don't want to be called these kinds of things. And so they are silent. The irony, of course, is that the use of this kind of language is itself a kind of hate speech. Yep. If anything was hate speech, yep. but that seems to escape the attention of those who are pushing for it. So I, while I accept the good intentions of people and their people are moved here by by desire to minimize the kinds of uh, bad things that are said about people um, and so on, it, it simply can't be done by the law. Again, if I can make an example, look, um, <clears throat> your listeners may not know this, right? But to be Irish has not always been a popular thing. I mean, we were included in the 1860s with the large you know, amounts of Irish people landing on the ports on the east side of the United States. There were no nothing movements and, and, and Irish people were regarded as vile and scum and beneath contempt. Yep. Catholics too, for much of history, certainly in the Anglophone world, are treated with, with contempt and hatred. And to be Irish and Catholic is to be double-barreled hatred. Uh, Though there are still indications of this in point of view. I'm not being oversensitive about it, but I have incur I have had incidents in my life where this has been a factor and I have been treated poorly because of this. Um, but I can't do anything. In other words, I don't want the law to come in to defend me on this because in doing that, they simply make matters worse. They make me now a privileged group and therefore they give force to the suspicions of people who think badly of me, that I am now being protected in a special way and that what they think about me is true and so on and so forth. So I go, no. In the end, thinking about people in terms of their membership of a group as being the primary and important thing about it, okay, what we now call identity politics, is a fatal 
mistake. It runs against the entire trend of our history in the West, which has been the emancipation, by and large, of the individual from the grip of the state and society. And that is a tragedy. That, in fact, brings me back to the earlier book, <laughs> uh, Freedom's Progress, which is precisely about this. And I point out that in the middle of the 20th century, with the collectivist movements of uh, fascism and, and uh, national socialism and Bolshevism, we saw a return to tribalism. And now, in a curious and very distressing way, we are seeing another reversion to tribalism, where it's not you as you that matters, not your abilities, not your achievements, not your desires, not your goals, but you as a member of a group because of your skin color or your sex or your gender or your your sexual attraction or whatever it might be. These things are the things that make you what you really are and you are to be accorded special privileges because of them. And I'm saying, no, you should not be accorded special uh, legal responsibilities or disabilities because of it, but there's no reason why you should be accorded special abilities. And the fact that your ancestors uh, were badly treated and enslaved uh, 150 years ago doesn't actually have any implications for you right now. My ancestors were badly treated 150 years ago. In fact, my ancestors have been badly treated for about 800 years. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm, what am I going to do? Make capital of this? Look for reparations? Sue somebody? <laughs> the answer is no. Just get on with it. Uh, I've got, uh, I, I really appreciate the the time that you're taking. And if at any point you need to, uh, need to uh, bring things to a close, let me know. But I, there's so much more I want to talk about. Uh, one, and I kind of meant to do this at the very beginning, uh, but I, I actually like that uh, uh, we didn't. Um, uh, but, but tell me how, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. You came uh, from, uh, I know Cork is a county. It's also a city, I guess, right? That's right yeah. uh, and it's in Ireland. Uh, how does a kid from, uh, <laughs> a, a not, as you described, a, a not very privileged part of Cork, uh, uh, you don't you don't meet many philosophers. Uh, I, I I am friends with another uh, philosopher, a professor of mine from college, who was a libertarian even back then. So uh, uh, William Irvin, who's written a lot on Stoicism, uh, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, but how, how does that kid uh, get to be uh, uh, a philosopher, uh, much less a, a libertarian philosopher? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, the first thing I should tell you about Cork is that in the estimation of other Irish people, Cork people have an exceptionally high opinion of themselves. In fact, it's said that a Corkman with an inferiority complex is one who thinks he's as good as anybody else. <laughs> but... Uh, well, I grew up in the 1950s, and I often joke with my children that, that the 1950s was in black and white. And, you know, it was it was a very closed society. Um, it, it was very constricted in many ways. Uh, it was conservatively Catholic, so that 95% of the population were practicing in some form or another, whether genuinely or not is another question. Um, and uh, it was, you know, the only access I had to information was the local public library. And I taught myself to read from the age of three and four, and I read voluminously. But the 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 kind of, but I always felt there was more to life than I was getting from my education. I hated school, by the way. I just felt that school was kind of involuntary incarceration. Me too. And when I, when I, when I was sixteen, I came across a book called "Why I Am Not a Christian" by Bertrand Russell. Yep. 
And the effect on this was like an intellectual detonation. I went, whoa, it opened up a world to me that I didn't know existed. And suddenly all of the kind of inchoate thoughts that I'd been having, well, not all of them, but a lot of them were given a kind of focus. And I began to realize there was, there was a world in which these ideas were talked about and people understood and so on. And then, so I read madly in philosophy for the next four years. I, I, I often joke, I made the mistake of reading Locke's essay on human understanding from cover to cover, all 900 pages of it, which is a mistake. Don't do that. Locke's a great guy, but you know, there's no need to go that far. Um, and so I, then when I got out of school, I never wanted to go to another educational establishment again. Zero, zilch, none. And I was quite happy. I was making a living and I was reading. Uh, spending all my money on philosophy books. Oh, what and were you? I, how are you making a living? Uh, I was a musician. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We, we won't say we talk about that. As okay. I sometimes say, my service to music these days is not to play. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I was making a living, and uh, and that was fine. Except that when it got to be about twenty. I got really dissatisfied with philosophy. I thought, you know, we're just going to run in circles. We're chasing our tails. These questions have been discussed for thousands of years. Nobody's got an answer to it. Uh, not, it's not making me happy. I don't need to work and spend my money on books to make myself miserable. I can just be that way naturally. And so I sold all my books and I gave up philosophy. And, <laughs> and then a couple of years later, I found myself working in the Netherlands. Uh, and I worked in a beer factory, and there's a certain irony in that, and that I don't drink, and I never have. And walking home from work after, uh, when when I when I would come home after work, I, I sort of radiated the smell of beer for about twelve feet all around me. I could see people walking by me, going, "My God, how can that man stand, let alone walk?" Anyway, I worked in this environment uh, in the beer cellars, and of course they have to be cold for the, for the beer, and so I was on my own for a very long period of time, nobody there just doing the work. And so when you're in that environment, you have nothing to do but think. And I started thinking about these questions again. And I thought, in the end, I thought, well, is this it? <laughs> is this what life is about? You know, you get up in the morning, you go to work, you come home, you have your dinner, you go to sleep, you get up in the morning and do it. Is that what it is? Because that didn't sound very, that didn't seem very attractive to me. Um, did life any meaning? Did life have any meaning? Did morality make any difference? Could we possibly know the truth about anything in any substantial way? And as you recognize, these are all philosophical questions coming back to bite me. So I made a decision that there were only two ways to deal with this problem. One was to get drunk and stay drunk. Or in other words, get distracted. I mean, you could you could lose yourself in the world in entertainment and sports, whatever it is, or you could take drugs or you could drink or do something like that. Anything but think about them. Keep those questions away. Or you could face up to them. And I thought, well, I'll face up to them and I'll I'll go where I think people will talk about these kinds of things. And I came home, saved my money, applied to university, and went. And I never really all I wanted to do was talk to interesting people. And that's I had no great plan. Okay. And that's how it happened. So that's how I ended up in the university sector. So then I found myself at the University of Notre Dame as a graduate student. And that was amazing because all of the most of my fellow graduate students there were actually Christians. Is this the Notre Dame uh, here in America, in Indiana? Yes, yeah, University of Notre Dame, Indiana. Yeah. And uh, and I wasn't. I was an atheist at that stage. And uh, and I thought, you know, religious believers are stupid. <laughs> So, of course, I got a shock when all of these really smart guys, uh, you know, Wesleyan Methodists and Dutch Reformed and Baptists and so on, all there with their beliefs and all obviously intelligent. And so this was a bit of a shock. 
cut a long story short, in the end, uh, after about three years, I I came back to the Catholic Church and have been stuck in it ever since. God help me. Um, <laughs> and uh, so then uh, then I came back to Ireland with a couple of kids. I was married and got a job in University College Dublin. And so I went, you know, for 15, 20 years. And uh, then um, a friend of mine, a colleague, uh, was going off to Germany for a year sabbatical. And I'd been chatting to him about kind of things I was concerned about. One in, one topic I was interested in was money, what money was, because it seemed a very puzzling thing that people would give you goods and services for dirty little pieces of paper. And they thought, well, I mean, if I make up my own little pieces of paper, nobody gives me anything for those, right? But this particular piece, what's special about this one? So anyway, he came back with a book called Theory of Money God, and Credit. Is money and credit, actually, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mises' book and so on. How could I have forgotten it? And of course, if you were to start anybody off in this area of thinking, that's not the book you would choose. Absolutely not. I mean, this is a German book. This is a serious Teutonic book, you know, with footnotes and stuff. But the point is, as I'm sure you've discovered yourself, as I'm sure your listeners will discover, there are times in your life when you have certain questions that require an answer and somebody will speak to those questions. At other times, you can you could address you could find this material, but because you don't have a genuine live question, it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. But for me, this addressed the question I was interested in, and I read it like a novel. And again, I had the same kind of feeling of my head blowing up. And of course, then I started reading bureaucracy and human action. And while most people find the first 130 pages of human action really difficult, I was on a high. Oh man, I, I couldn't believe this. And I was thinking, wow, I can't believe it. And I had this another kind of enlightenment thing. And then I found the Mises Institute and I read Rothbard and in the space of two or three years. And then in the year 2007, I found myself in uh, Auburn in Alabama giving a paper at the uh, Austrian Scholars Conference. And I remember Tom Woods said to me afterwards, some years afterwards, we all said to one another, who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> so that was a lot of fun and that was it really uh, and then I wrote uh, I did the kind of intellectual biography of Rothbard and I wrote my book in Libertarian Anarchy and then my my magnum opus I suppose is Freedom's Progress where I try to trace the idea of the development of freedom uh, through political thought uh, and and history and so on so I, I, I want to get to that I want to uh, uh, ask uh, a couple of questions in there as far as uh, uh, Christianity, you, sorry, you asked me to tell you my life story now, right? <laughs> no, it's it's great. Uh, I I love it when people have enough time to talk about this because uh, uh, I, as much as I find uh, ideas and, and things like that interesting, like I think people themselves are much more interesting. So, um, and we're gonna get at some point. I'm gonna ask you about the music too. But uh, as was it your uh, uh, colleagues uh, what they had to say. Uh, about Christianity that uh, hooked you? Um, were there particular uh, writers, thinkers that uh, uh, the light went off in your head? Or uh, uh, we're, we're allowed to talk about these things here. So oh, well, how was that process? I, I wasn't, I mean, uh, yeah, I was staying off it deliberately because it's not everybody's cup of tea. But yeah, if you'd like to want to know about that, I'm happy to tell you. Well, so, so my friends, uh, which is what they became very quickly, were interested in these matters and would discuss particular topics among themselves, like um, is infant baptism efficacious, and so on. Now, I didn't care one way or the other, right? It was a matter of, 
in a sense of no particular interest to me. But I'm always interested in argument and evidence and so so when they were arguing about these things, they, they would they would disagree on various points. And I then they, then I became the kind of token ex-Catholic and they would they would kind of ask me and what would happen. I would say, well, look, I'm you know, I would try from the dregs of my memory to give an answer. And they would sort of think, well, well at least we're not like those crazy Catholics who have these ridiculous views. And I didn't mind the church being hanged, but I, I really wanted to be hanged for the right offense. And I would think, well, I'm not quite sure that that's the view. You know, so for example, I might say, well, you know, Catholics have this really weird view on grace, which is like, you kind of, it's like driving up to the, the uh, filling station. You know, you kind of tank up with grace on a Sunday morning and it kind of does you for the week and then you tank up again. Yeah, I was putting it kind of crudely, right? But I, we were friends. So, and I'd say, no, I don't think it's quite like that. And they would say, well, Catholics think they can kind of, you know, creep up to heaven as it were by like keeping a ledger of, you know, doing good works. And they say, well, I'm not quite sure that that's the right story either. Right. So in order to defend the faith I didn't have, <laughs> which is kind of ironic, I actually had to go and learn about it, which I did. And so after about three years of this, I became more or less an expert in Catholic thought while not being in any way a believer, which is really strange. in the way that you could, for example, if you, you could learn about Buddhism or Hinduism or Confucianism and so on and not and not believe anything about it, but understand how things move and what their assumptions are and how the arguments go. And then uh, then my eldest son, Brendan, was born, and that changes your perspective on life. Uh, you know, whereas when you don't have children, you kind of think in, I don't know, six months ahead, maybe if you're really... Um, careful. When you have a child, you suddenly get an existential shock because now you're thinking 20 years ahead. And that kind of changes your perspective on things. And the questions that were sort of dead or half dead now become alive again. Um, and then also, I had a friend, uh, I won't mention his name, just don't want to embarrass him, who said to me one night after we, my wife and his, he and his wife, we'd been out to the movies and we came back to my apartment and our wives had gone off and we were sitting there chatting. And he said to me, why aren't you a Christian? And nobody had actually asked me that. <laughs> and I, I started to answer, but I had a very peculiar experience, which is I kind of got detached from my voice. I could hear myself saying what I was saying, but I suddenly realized that the person saying these things was a person 16 years younger than I was now. And, and I had this really alarming experience of not knowing where I stood, suddenly finding myself adrift. You know, you know, when you have an out of date sat nav and they change the road system. And so when you look at the sat nav, it shows your car is in the middle of a field. <laughs> Whatever. That's what I was like intellectually. I was sort of I'm going, I don't know what I think about this. But the effect of that was suddenly to use William James's terms to turn dead questions into live questions. Now they became existentially important. It wasn't just a matter of moving the concepts around or juggling the bit. It now became existentially important. And I started to think like crazy about it. Now I'm reading with a vengeance. I'm reading with a desire to know and to know the truth about these matters. And I did that for about six months. And then I had another strange experience, which was, I don't know if you know the Notre Dame campus at all, but they have this wonderful kind of French Gothic church. And... Um, I was coming home in order to get from uh, the O'Shaughnessy Hall, which is where the philosophy department was, to where I lived in what was known as Fertility Village, because <laughs> all graduate students, lots of children. 
uh, I had to go by the church from the back, and I was going by the back of the church. And <clears throat> underneath the main church, there is this kind of little chapel, very pedestrian, like lin linoleum on the floor, nothing grand, ordinary pews, no nothing fancy, no stained glass and so on, nothing. And I had this strange impulse to go in. How would you describe it? Well, it's as if, you know the way when you're, when when you and a friend come to a door and you want your friend to go first, you kind of hold the door and you put your hand behind somebody's back. You don't push them through the door, but you kind of guide them through the door. I felt as if somebody was guiding me in this direction and I'd never been in there before. And I had to go down these steps into this basement and it's middle of the week and middle of the afternoon and I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm having this conversation with myself, which makes me sound mad. It is like, what are you doing? Another part of I feel like Gollum now from the movie, right? Where he's where Smeagol is having this yeah. conversation and, and saying, uh, you know very well what you're doing. And another way I said, I'm not ready. And it says, you'll never be ready. And it's going, going on. And I walk in and there's this confessional actually open and operating. I don't know what the chances of our walking into a church randomly and finding a confessional operating outside Easter and Christmas. And the chances are pretty slim. And I kept on walking and I had this kind of odd feeling that my legs were taking me rather than I was taking my legs. And I eventually went into the confession. The slide went back and I said, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been. And then I had to think. Because it had been a long time. And I made the best confession I could. This is not the best way to make a confession, by the way. <laughs> you should really do your examination of conscience beforehand. But, hey, no, the spirit moves where it will, so you go with it. And then when I'd finished, <clears throat> there was a deadly silence. It seemed like an eternity. <laughs> I thought I've killed the poor man. <laughs> and then this voice said, it was probably about 30 seconds, or maybe less. He said, uh, my son, he said, I cannot tell you how happy it makes me to be here today to receive your confession. I was not expecting that. I was expecting a kick up the rear end, several of them. And that's not what I got. I got an embrace. And that's it, really, uh, after that. So I sometimes describe myself as a grumpy Catholic because that's what I am. Uh, I, it, it would be much better for me in many ways if I weren't one, if I weren't a Christian believer. Sometimes I think, oh, I wish I could ditch this whole thing, but what can I do? I'm stuck with it. It's stuck with me. Yeah, I, 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 I find myself in the same situation uh, often. Uh, how did you get, uh, after Notre Dame, did you go back to Ireland? No, actually, I, I got my first job at Catholic University in Washington. So uh, that was in 83, and I was there from 83 to 86. And my eldest son was now six. The next son was four and a half, five. And we'd had another son, Jared, who'd just been born. And we really had to make up our minds whether we stayed or came back home. And I liked it. I liked Washington. I liked Catholic University. I liked America. It's the only place, by the way, I've ever been where I felt more at home <laughs> than I do in Ireland. And... Uh, I, I wasn't in any hurry to come back and had a, had a permanent residency thing and so on. So we could stay. It wasn't a problem. But uh, a job came up and I applied. And to my astonishment, they actually offered it to me. I wasn't I was kind of offhand about the interview. I didn't really care whether they gave it to me or not. Yep. And uh, they did. And I took it. And that's it. Really, I've been here ever since. So uh, it, it was the process of... Um, mm. 
becoming a, uh, a libertarian. Uh, and again, one is obviously much more important than the other. Uh, but uh, describe the process of someone who uh, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, when you uh, were a musician and reading books and things like that, I'm sure that you were probably not anywhere close to being a, a Rothbardian uh, or anything like that. Uh, how does, uh, how do you go from being curious about money, reading Mises, you know, was it, was it human action? Uh, what was it that, that got you to, um, uh, a thing that in academia, uh, where you were, uh, eventually it's not a very popular, uh, thing. Uh, what, <laughs> what was that? What was that process like? You could, you could say that again. Well, really it was, uh, let, let, me, let me see if I can explain it in this way. <clears throat> I have to get a bit technical here for a moment. Uh, anyone who's ever studied philosophy and, and Kant knows the distinction between the a priori and the a posteriori. Right? And so the a priori are things that you know in advance. It's, you may not actually articulate them, but once they're pointed out to you, you understand and so on. So, for example, a lot of geometry is kind of a priori. Once you get the basic uh, definitions, then the rest is a matter of teasing it out and so on. And when you see that it is so, you see not only that it is so, but that it has to be so. A posteriori are things we know on the basis of experience. But Kant thought that there were there was a category of things which he called the synthetic a priori. In other words, things which were necessarily true, but were not just matters of logic or mathematics. Okay, um, and this, of course, is is a disputed category. Now. In in the in the area of this, what, wherever you might find things that are a priori, normally they'd be in in kind of formal disciplines like mathematics and logic. But when I read theory of money and credit, which is Mises' account of money and credit, obviously, uh, he explains not only what money is, how it came to be, but actually how it has to be, and cannot not be. And that made it a matter not just of fact, of history, I mean, where things had gone one way or the other, but of necessity. It made it an a priori matter. And that was a real shock to me because I didn't think that you could have a, anything a priori in the realm of the social and political. And it may not sound like a big deal to most people, but for me, it was like an electric shock. Right. So I give you like Locke had the opposite view, right? I'm, well, I don't. I, I'm not sure I can comment on that straight off. But let, let me explain sure. how it works in terms. So, so look, um, you said when when I was like when I was younger playing music and so on, I wouldn't have been a Rothbardian. The answer is yeah, I wouldn't. In fact, my view would have been, and I, I remember thinking this uh, that in an exchange, exchange necessarily benefits one person at the expense of the other. Right? I might not have been able to say that, but that's what I actually thought. Right? So I would have been a kind of like a low level socialist right i wouldn't have been a theoretical certainly not a card carrying one but kind of low level so when austrian economics says that in an uncoerced exchange at the moment of exchange both parties benefit it's positive sum not only is it the case that one person gains and the other person loses but in fact or that they are both equal. In fact, both gain. And again, this hit me like a, ooh, like a slap on the side of the head by, with, uh, by a two by four. I go, that's incredible. And I thought about it and the answer is yes. 
at that precise moment. One microsecond later, you may regret your decision. Of course, we've all engaged in impulse buying. But when you think about what's involved, you realize that not only is it the case that this is so, it must be so. And that's the point again, the necessity there. That, that, that thing, if you like, grabbed me as a philosopher and excited me. And that's what kind of led me down the rabbit hole yeah. into the Mises Institute and Rothbard and Mises and the gang. Yeah, I think this is a good uh, time to transition into talking about freedom's progress. Um, mm. I guess my first question would be, um, why, how and why did humans first start coming up with political <laughs> philosophies, political um, beliefs? Ooh, how do they first do it? Again, <laughs> I seem to be saying this a lot today. I don't quite know. I'm not sure that not only do I not know, I'm not sure that anybody in fact can know. Well, we can speculate on it. Um, I think that we can't go back further than the situation in which we find human beings in associating in groups, small groups perhaps, but groups larger than the family, but not necessarily very, very large, maybe 50 or 100 people. And when this happens, you have to have some forms of coordination, whether it's for hunting or the division of the spoils or the growing of crops or whatever it might be. And the, so, so ways of doing things develop. They don't necessarily develop because someone has the bright idea or someone issues orders. And generally speaking, in these groups, there is no leader. If you were to go to these groups and say, take me to your leader, they would be kind of puzzled because they don't have one. And indeed, you, see, you find the same thing among the, the, the Native American uh, Indian tribes, in, for many of them anyway, in the 19th century, where, uh, for example, the, you, you had a division of responsibility, you had wise men who, had, who knew what we were doing. And then if somebody wanted to go off to war with another tribe, he would say, I'm going off, anybody wants to join me, and they'd go. Nobody was obliged to go. He didn't issue any orders, right? And then they stayed for as long as they were doing it and you know, stole somebody else's horses and came back. So you have, but you have some form of minimal kind of coordination, right? And generally speaking, so human beings, then once you have this, you have a complex psychological, sociological, theological complex where, where all the elements, as it were, are intermixed. We would think of them as being distinct and having to be put together. But I think originally they're all mixed together. And, and over time, we have disentangled them. So, for example, I would think in the Judeo-Christian tradition, um, We've gone from a kind of theocentric or quasi-theocentric view to a view where we've distinguished the political and the theological. It wasn't easy, right? And in fact, one of the I think one of the unique things about that tradition is that it occurs so early, so that even you know in the Davidic kingdom, for example, you see the the division of the two, right? Whereas in other kingdoms at the same period, and the theological and the and the political are embedded. So the pharaoh is a king, is a is a god. Right or the whatever to Mesopotamia, and even in Rome, we think of Rome as kind of secular, <laughs> but the Roman emperors were divinized, and but that was perfectly natural. Nobody thought this is kind of weird. This is you, your political leaders were divine, so, <clears throat> but to get from those very early groups to the complicated empires and and uh, groups like the Mesopotamians and the and the Assyrians and so on, and the Egyptians takes a long time, and nobody fully understands how this works. But it certainly would have to do with uh, economies of scale, 
productivity and I would think chiefly the invention of agriculture. Because with the invention of agriculture, you get surpluses, and when you get surpluses, you get stored wealth, and when you get stored wealth, you have necessity to defend them, and some people can now uh, not devote their time to growing crops and can devote them to other, and so on and so forth. Uh, but we're in the realm of speculation here. Uh, but I don't think it's un completely mad to think about it in this way. Well, doesn't uh, Oppenheimer kind of say that's how this the state or the proto-state type things uh, evolved, but out of that shift to agriculture, that there was, you know, a storehouse with all the wheat, and sometimes people would come by and say, um, "Give me half the wheat." Is that uh, uh, what do you think of of Oppenheimer's uh, argument in his book, The State? Well, you you can't really have a state unless you have a surplus in production. Okay, if if you're living hand to mouth, day to day, then what's somebody going to steal? On you, all they can steal is your dinner for today. <laughs> okay, but once you once you get into something like agriculture and you develop surpluses, then you have now the emergence of wealth and the wealth class, and people who control it. And you also have the development of a proto-military class, which is associated with your ruler. And the leader of the military group generally tends to be the person now giving the orders. And of course, that that group, which which emerges first probably to defend you can also, of course, uh, I don't say attack you, but but if you like, expropriate you and, and so on. And so then you get the idea of taxation and where you have to pay and so on and so forth. This and, and then you get the idea, by the way, that the ruler, the, the chief military officer, in fact, owns all the land and owns all the resources. And you hold it, as it were, on kind of a tenure system from him. That's what you get in Egypt to some extent. As technically speaking, was a situation, for example, in England after the conquest in 1066. William the Conqueror uh, literally, as it were, owned all of England. <laughs> now he gave he gave tenure to his his uh, chief military officers and so on, but they held it, as it were, from him. Technically speaking, he owned all of that. And there's still residues of this. All things like whales and porpoises around the coast of Great Britain all belong to the Queen. <laughs> still. So, yeah, it's a complicated story, and part of it is speculation, part of it is kind of intellectual conjecture. Uh, we have some evidence, and we can retrofit, uh, if you like, what happened in prehistory with what we know about early history. But it's not, it's not completely mad to think, I think, as Oppenheimer and I do and others do in this area. Would it be fair, it be to, fair say to say that after that the formation, formation of the state, state or the kind of the proto-state type thing, that that's where what a lot a lot of what we know as political philosophy that started there as a justification for that uh, particular arrangement. Yes. Um, so political philosophy has always been largely a kind of theoretical appropriation of the political realities of the society in which the philosophers found themselves. Philosophers like to flatter themselves that they lead in this area. But actually, they don't. They follow, by and large. And so the, the, the realities are there, as it were. And so uh, the political philosophers see it as their task to explain how this is a possible and indeed necessary. In fact, one of the reasons I wrote the uh, Freedom's Progress in the way that I did was to try to dislodge that view of things. So not only do I talk about philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and so on, but I also talk about the history of the situation and about institutions. 
So as it were, so if, if, if you like, if the treatment of the philosophers is narrow, and I broaden that from time to time to take in things like slavery, okay, and then I talk about Christianity, and then I talk about medieval institutions, and I talk about, you know, uh, all of these kinds of things. So to, to, to counteract the impression that students sometimes have given to them by philosophers, that philosophers are the one who came up with these ideas kind of ab initio, and that's not true. It is actually dialectical. Okay, so they reflect on that. Those reflections do have an effect on the reality, but then the new reality, if you like, is understood by the philosophers and so on and so forth. So it goes on in this kind of dialectical fashion. Uh, in, in American, American textbooks, textbooks history, history, political philosophy, philosophy kind of stuff, kind of stuff I, I think that the Greeks are always kind of presented as the first political thinkers who put some of these things down uh, on paper. Is that correct? Broadly speaking, yes, certainly for us, because those are the texts we have access to. We don't, I mean, there may have been a flourishing uh, system of political philosophers in Egypt, but if there was, we don't know anything about it. Okay. Because of the because of Alexandria? Well, no, 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 no. Well, sorry, I mean, I'm talking about uh, Egypt long before that. Okay. I mean, by the time Alexandria is built, we're in the historical period. Okay. Alexandria is a Greek city. Yeah. I mean, it's in Egypt, but the Greeks, the Ptolemies are a Greek dynasty. Okay, so that stage we're well into the era, we're well into the era of history, but in prehistory, you know, if you go back to the Middle Kingdom and so on, if you're back like 1500 BC and so on, we don't quite know. We know something of the political arrangements and leaders, and but we don't really, we don't have the writings tend to be accounts of what's owed by A to B and so on. Nobody there, we don't have any treatise on political philosophy coming from that period and so on. Uh, that's why what we, you know, the, what we as Christians think is the Old Testament or the, or the Hebrew Scriptures are so unique because they give us, uh, uh, whenever they were redacted. I mean, wherever you you think on this, I mean, their 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 reach is back to a time which is in in almost like prehistory or or proto history for many other uh, uh, civilizations that were around at the time. So yeah, we 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 tend to get it from the Greeks and we tend to think the Greeks are making this, but. But the Greek thought coming from Plato and Aristotle is not normal in a sense because the Greece of that period was going through revolutionary changes. And so like any society in which there are kind of upsets and, this, and the normal ways of going on have been uh, discombobulated, uh, it, it makes people, one of the advantages, it makes people think about things and start to write things down. So yeah, we get them in Plato and Aristotle. I mean, Athenian society, which we think of as the kind of normal Greek uh, situation was not normal. In fact, Athens was a giant among uh, Greek states. There were about a hundred of them, polis. <laughs> but Athens would be the size of probably, I don't know, a quarter of Colorado <laughs> in terms of extent, tiny and so on, and yet so huge and politically significant in terms of its thinking and, and its effect. And again, Rome started off as a, I often think of Rome as a kind of limited company of brigands. Because their their idea was, well, it's a whole lot easier if we actually go out and take other people's stuff rather than doing it ourselves. And that's what an empire is effectively. Yeah. And in case, by the way, in case people think that this is some strange way of doing things, the only reason the Roman Empire in the end collapsed is because there wasn't enough people to steal stuff from and, and the others got wise to it and started not coughing up their 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 material goods. But even in the, even as late as the 17th century. In the area between Scotland and England, the border areas, cattle raiding was a way of life. 
Explain indeed, what that term is. Well, cattle raiding was so. You, say you were oh, cattle raiding. I, I didn't quite. Yeah. I beg your pardon. That's my 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 lack of articulation. No, no. Yeah, I just didn't quite uh, under. I didn't quite hear it. So yeah. yeah. So what you did was, I mean, you were a Scottish tribe, a Scottish Scottish clan, and young men, and you would go off and you'd go over the border and you'd steal the English guy's cattle and you bring them back, and that'd be a bit of a mayhem. Some people would get injured. Sometimes people got killed. Now, were you held in disrepute by your tribe or your clan for doing this? No. On the contrary, you were held in high esteem. By the way, the English gave as good as they got, so they would go cattle raiding across the border. And the idea is, and this is the, the essence of politics, of course, as, as my first professor said to me, Mr. Casey, the peasant always pays. Right? So it's much easier if somebody else does the productive work and then you swoop in and you take the proceeds. Yep. It sure beats working. In, 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 in the words of the, of the uh, BBC uh, comedy uh, series, only fools and horses work. Yep. Uh, where did the idea, um, well, I, I know that the idea of freedom in political philosophy, uh, I think when it first kind of came into that stream of thought was very different than it is now. So when did freedom start being a, a thing that uh, political thinkers started talking about and, and how was it different from what uh, an ANCAP or even like a classical liberal would think? Okay, so freedom for people in the classical and early medieval period would have been largely considered to be the ability to participate in the decision-making of the state, right? So you'd be a Roman citizen. In that sense, you were free. If you weren't a citizen, you weren't free. So you had some say, as it were, in how things were done. It might be minimal, might be only electing somebody at some stage, in fact, very much what we have now, right? Uh, but so the idea of freedom was largely cons um, construed in terms of your ability to participate in some kind of political process. It's not really, except with little kind of glimpses here and there, it's not until you get to the middle medieval period people begin to think slightly differently. And I, I have an account of this. It's not an original with me. I don't think it is anyway. If it is, I, if it is, I probably stole it from somebody and I've forgotten who I stole it from. But the idea is that uh, it's not until Christianity, it's not until the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century and the succeeding period of the barbarian proto-states uh, trying to figure out what to do with the church the role with the Catholic Church being cast in the role as a kind of successor to the Roman Empire, at least in certain respects. And that, that takes a long time. You're talking about several hundred years here. But eventually they start thinking, when you get into the 11th century, they're beginning to think about who gets to do what, who has the power, who has the control. And one of the features of Western society at that time was that there were two loci. There was the emperor... Okay, of the Holy Roman Emperor, about which people have often joked it was now the Holy Roman or an Emperor, but anyway, leave that to one side. And you have the Pope. And each was, as it were, making claims, defensible in some cases and indefensible in others, and stepping on each other's toes. And the fact that there were two loci created a kind of space that people could use to express their freedom. You also had the... Um, the origin of the cities as more or less independent entities, more or less independent of the surrounding states. And all of these things came together 
to kind of create an embryonic social situation in which the idea of freedom as something pertaining to the individual, not necessarily as part of a state arose. It would be too much to say that it came out full-blooded. It didn't do that. But the kind of germ of it, the embryo, was there. And it developed uh, during the med the high medieval period. Yeah, And, and I think uh, this question has a lot of bearing on what we're trying to do in the Mises Caucus in promoting decentralization. But my understanding of uh, uh, you know Western European history um, uh, the, the the phrase that sticks in my mind was in interstices, which was, I believe, the uh, so you know you're saying there's two loci in in this order, but then within under that there were you know uh, you know there were free cities, there was you know like a baron who controlled this part of Germany and and all that, but but there were the interstices. If tell me if I'm wrong, were the the kind of places in between where, where people could uh, operate uh, not really under the influence of one political leader or the other. Is that right? No, that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, we sometimes think you have the vision of the empire as the emperor sitting there radiating kind of power throughout the whole area, but that's not true. I mean, the, the Holy Roman Empire was largely Germany and Northern Italy and, and, and some parts of what we now think of as Eastern Europe, something like 300 political entities, towns, cities, duchies, counties, dukedoms, uh, kingdoms, all kind of loosely and, and r related to another in complex ways, fighting and arguing, agreeing and discussing. Um, and it, it's a very complicated sort of way. I mean, it's not like, you know, the, the emperor just gives the order and it comes all the way down. I mean, it's all people are fighting and arguing and, and there's people can move from one area to another and so on and so forth. And as I say, the emergence of the cities, hugely significant in terms of that. Again, and also, of course, the emergence of the universities mm -hmm. and educational establishments, all of this now and the appropriation of the classical learning in the context of the medieval university, the development of systematic theology, all this is, the, we find it, I don't think we fully appreciate the, the radical and kind of explosive nature of medieval, high medieval society, medieval society from the 11th to the 13th century. Quite extraordinary. I, I believe that our Western civilization has its roots primarily in that period. I mean, of course, that period is fueled by contributions from Greece and from Rome and from, from Christianity and Judaism and so on. But I, they all come together in this kind of heady, complicated, dialectically explosive mix. And it is out of that that our freedom first begins to develop, as we understand it, as libertarians. So who, who was the first uh, person or school of thought to start putting down on paper kind of the... The beginnings of the classical liberal libertarian idea of freedom. <laughs> this is like the sixty-four thousand dollar question again. I don't know. I mean, there are lots of contenders. In a sense, I don't think there's any one person. Okay. But what tends to happen is okay. Let, let me see if I can explain it this way. Um, what was theology up to the middle of the eleventh century? Theology up to the middle of the eleventh century was more or less unsystematic reflections on scripture. And there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> okay, absolutely nothing. In the 11th century, however, with the universities, people begin to think we can approach these questions in a different way. 
instead of just taking the text and expounding it and exegeting it, we can actually ask about, say, something like the notion of grace. So we can read Augustine on grace, and then we can check to see what the fathers of the church were saying about it. And then we can actually put it all together and we can write a treatise about it, which isn't the expression of any one commentator on scripture or indeed a scripture passage itself, but our reflections trying to bring this all together. This is also done with law so that the legal texts, the institutes of Justinian, okay, which we have from the, the fifth and sixth centuries from Byzantium, um, also become the material for teaching law but instead of just learning it, what was written in those books, the professors at the time start to try and put it all together in a systematic way. So there's a systematic approach to theology, to philosophy and science. And all of these things are being treated systematically in a new way. And this is radical. We don't appreciate how radical it is, except that it's under attack right now. <laughs> okay, which begins, it makes it seem like a halcyon period. But all sorts of exciting things were going on. I mean, the foundation of the universities was completely mad. If ever there was anything anarchic, it was the foundation of the universities. So how did they start? Did somebody set one up? The answer is no. I mean, you get somebody like Peter Abelard, who coming out of the cathedral schools is gets a reputation for knowing about this kind of stuff and suddenly students start arriving and the students then being in a place the university arises as a way of kind of organizing what's already in process it is quite interesting to see how that actually works okay and then you have that you have the mendicant orders the dominicans and the franciscans who are founded at the same time for different purposes and they filter into the university systems and they and i mean it's just incredibly rich and exciting this is a, a a gap in my knowledge, but was that school of thought? Was that the scholastics? Yeah, well, you could call it all scholastics because they were all they were they were in the schools, as right. it were. But I mean, scholasticism isn't a single body of doctrine, and 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 scholastics differed from one another and disagreed with one another dialectically, just as much as professors do today, or at least did until we had the recent uh, uh, enforcement of a neo orthodoxy in our universities. Yeah. And so I begin to think about these things, yeah. So out of all that, how do we get from there to to somebody somebody like John Locke? Locke. Oh, well, now, okay, okay, you have to see. So from the period, say, in the middle of the 11th century until about the early 1500s, you don't have states as we understand them today. So people think, look at a map and they say, that's France. But, But France isn't a natural entity. It's not like a tree, okay? I mean, one of the interesting things is if you if you read the account of Joan of Arc, it, it her voice has told her, she's from Lorraine. Lorraine is now part of France. But her voice has told her to go to France. She couldn't go to France if Lorraine was in France. So Brittany wasn't part of France. Normandy wasn't part of France. Aquitaine wasn't part of France. Spain, as we know it now, didn't come into existence until the late 15th century. Castile and Aragorn and Andalusia and other places, right? So so the the nascent kind of uh, nation state in its embryonic form is a very recent development. It only goes back about 500 years, right? And again, um, there are reasons. I mean, it's too complicated perhaps in, in our discussion here to go into it, and I tried to deal with it to some extent in the book. 
there's no simple answer to it. It's a complex mixture of of thought and practicalities and existential matters. And the, and then, needless to say, with the with the onset of the Reformation in 1517, that creates a, that 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 if you like is a powder keg politically, because it that occurs in a situation where the unity of what was then Christendom is already beginning to fragment, and various political entities desire to be separate from the central powers anyway, right? So when you add that in, you now have, it's like the explosion goes off. It gets really complex. And then so you have the emergence of the modern states, and then you have philosophers trying to explain why should the king of France, for example, be all in all. I mean, why should he be the one to give all of the orders? And you have to explain this idea, the various ideas that you have here. So modern philosophy, modern political philosophy really comes into its own in this period. And it's quite ironic that most philosophers, when they're talking about it, don't realize just how recent a discipline their discipline is. They see it as something that's, the question is always, who should have power for how long and in what circumstances and how do we arrange things? And I'm going, well, there is a power question, which is why should anybody have it in this particular way? And then they look at you funny as if you said something rude and continue with their conversations if you hadn't said anything. It's a very recent thing. And one of the things I tried to get my students to see in my course on anarchy law in the state was just how recent the state is, just how new and novel. It doesn't mean it's bad or good, but it does mean that historically, you know, we tend to think back and look at Rome and think of it as a state, but Rome wasn't a state in that sense. Greece certainly wasn't a state in that sense. Maybe Mesopotamia to some extent and Egypt in, in parts, yeah. You know, but nothing like the state as we now know it is very recent. Very. So John Locke, uh, again, in uh, American textbooks and universities uh, and just kind of the, the popular uh, sort of narrative of how, uh, uh, you know, we separated from Britain and Declaration of Independence and all that is John Locke is always pointed to as the basis of the thought for, you know, Tom Jefferson that, that you see uh, back there. And he was the, was he the first one to come up with like the, uh, the, I don't know exactly what, is it the compact theory of the, where they, where people come together and like, well, we need to have the these things. Contract, yeah. yeah. And they, and they all agree on this. Um, uh, in some ways that's revolutionary and liberal, but sometimes as a libertarian today, I look back at that and like, oh, that's just a justification for, uh, you know, that's skipping the question that you ask, which is why should anyone have power? <laughs> but it's a justification for um, uh, why people have power. And it's a kind of a myth that makes it sound voluntary, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, again, see, why did Locke write his treatise? I mean, did he just have nothing else to do? Just have kind of an, an idle Wednesday, and he thought, "I think I'll write a treatise." You you don't really understand what he's doing in his work until you see, realize the historical context. There's just been this huge fight between the king and Parliament in England for power. I mean, a bloody civil war has been fought over a period of eight to nine years, with people killed, just like the American Civil War, for example. To and so on. Now, partly brought on by the emergence of the new kind of bourgeoisie uh, who saw themselves as being without power with the 
uh, it's a complicated story, but in any event, whatever you think about the story, and it's generally oversimplified, there's been this big fight between the king and parliament. Now, most people think of parliament as a, an institution which has always been around, but of course it hasn't. And how did parliament originate? Well, parliament originated as a way for the king to get money to do what he needed to do, which is generally to fight the French. <laughs> okay. And so instead of actually applying to every single person in the in the country to cough up the money, he said, I'll tell you what, why don't you send delegates and representatives to me and I'll make my case to them and then so on. So what tended to happen was a tax granting body, which is what parliament was. So the king had to go to parliament to ask for the money. And generally then they would say, well, yeah, but if, you, if we're going to give you the money, you're going to give, have to give us something as well. And so now we have a new dialectical situation. Now there, there's a dispute. Now the king is on top and parliament is clearly underneath. And you can see in the history of the time, the king is not happy about this, right? And he has the power to prorogue parliament and dissolve it, and he does, and so on and so forth. And parliament is getting a bit fed up with this. And they're saying, hang on a second, if we're going to be on the hook for the money, we want a bigger say in what goes on. And so you have this kind of dispute. So that's the context in which after the Civil War and after the restoration of the monarchy in England, which then was there on a different footing, and after the Glorious Revolution, as it's sometimes called, which is actually a squalid palace revolution, we leave that to one side, Locke is actually reflecting on these matters. And now he's giving an account of what he thinks has to be the case if we are to explain how Parliament is actually now the dominant partner in government. That's largely what he's doing. I'm not saying, by the way, that's all there is to it, but it explains a lot of what he's doing. And he's trying to appropriate reflectively in thought what has actually happened in practice. Let's uh, let's fast forward and take a detour at the same time. Uh, Marx, um, yeah. where did Marx, uh, how did, you know, where did he get his thought? How did that evolve? Um, how did he come up with this and w what was Marxism and why, uh, looking back today, why does that seem like such a, uh, a huge, um, uh, shift or, uh, uh, just this, this, uh, uh, great, uh, new force that has influenced a lot of things. How, where did all that come from? <laughs> well, if I could answer that, Hey, I, I, I'd be, they'd make me King, but, um, it's a complicated question. Uh, first of all, we're now in the 19th century. The middle of the 19th century was a revolutionary time. In the late 1840s, revolutions were breaking out all over Europe in revolt against what they saw as a dic dictatorial rule of monarchs at various areas. Remember, there's no Germany, by the way. Germany right. doesn't exist, right? There are various German provinces. And <clears throat> so it's post-Napoleon. Napoleon had given people, whether they liked it or not, a kind of vision of a unified polity. Okay, And one of the things that the Germans particularly felt was a lack of unity vis-a-vis, -vis, for example, the unified France and their neighbors to the left. So you have a situation where Marx is reflecting on this. Marx is also reflecting on the philosophy of Hegel. Okay, and trying to make, trying to understand, and he has this idea. I always see Marx as a kind of uh, Old Testament kind of prophet in that sense. He, he is, he's, he's, he's. I mean, he presents sort of reasons and data, but really that's not significant. He's really preaching in the wilderness, as it were. I think he's wrong, but that's in this on there. There's crazy prophets and there are sound prophets, and 
he is he's preaching revolution because he sees the entire political system as it currently exists in Europe as being decrepit, defunct, and indefensible. And he wants it overthrown. And he has this vision, which is in itself not a bad thing. In fact, it's of course, it's a secular version of the Perusia, of the second coming, except that he wants it to be instituted in secular terms. And that's, as Christians, we know that's not going to work. But, but it's the idea where, where everybody would actually sort of love one another and they'd all kind of go out happily in the morning and produce things and everybody would share and it would be wonderful and there'd be no fighting and no wars and so on. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a really nice picture, except it ain't going to happen. Okay, and as we know, all that happens in a revolution is that a lot of people get killed, property gets destroyed, um, new new uh, people in power come to power, and this, and things go on more or less as before. That's exactly what happened in Soviet Russia. By the way, the revolution didn't come in Germany, which is where he expected it to come in the developed uh, capitalist West, but in the more or less semi-barbarian area of Russia and other places. It's quite striking. Marx himself, an interesting character. Um, Capital, that's Capital is unreadable if anybody's ever attempted to read it. Only the first volume was finished by him. Uh, second and third volumes finished by Engels. Engels, by the way, under, I think, estimated as a contributor to this, very significant thinker himself. And Marx himself really knew nothing about industry, despite the fact that he lived off Engels. Uh, Engels was a factory owner. It's kind of ironic when you think about it. <laughs> okay. And uh, Marx himself, despite living in England for a large period of his life, never learned to speak English properly and never really moved outside the circle from his home to the British Library, where he went back and forth looking at manuscripts. That's pretty much it, really. Yeah. In, 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 in real terms, Marx, if it hadn't been for the Russian Revolution, Marxism would have probably died on the vine. Um, it had, had, he'd had a kind of brief flourishing in the, uh, the international in the well, 1850s and 60s. Don't quote me on the dates. I'm not sure if I've got them right. Um, but by the by, the time you get to the end of the century, Marxism is really kind of out of favor. And it's not until it's kind of picked up by Lenin and then transmuted that it gets reinvigorated in its own particular way. And of course, transmuted and changed in the process. Uh, I can't really go into the details of, of Marxism and so on. There's too much in there and, and it's wrong in so many ways, but in many interesting ways, which illuminate the truth, I think, that uh, it's really worth considering. But its baleful effects are still with us. And what's absolutely staggering to me today is that for anyone, for anyone who's lived, as I have, from the 50s and 60s and 70s, for whom the Cold War accompanied uh, their youth and early manhood, uh, and who witnessed, as it were, with amazement and his jaw hanging, the fall of the Berlin Wall as, a, as an event that happened in his lifetime. To see young people today so completely clueless about the devastating psychological, economic, social and political consequences of socialism is, un is literally unbelievable. I can't understand it. It's just, I'm saying, you know, but then I realize, of course, for them, they weren't born in 1989. For them, 1989 is an event in history. That's yep. if they know about it, by the way, at all. Yep. yep. Right? Yeah, that's one, yeah, of, the that's one of the big memories, big memories of mine, of mine a, a, about, about great, great historical, historical events, events was the Cold War and the Berlin Wall coming down. Uh, I grew up I, in the born in 1975, and I grew up 
like six blocks away from an air force base. And so people <laughs> would always say that, that this particular base was like in the top five lists of uh, uh, places that Russia would bomb. And I, I think I'm almost certain this memory is correct and not a, uh, um, just a, a creation of mine. I think we actually did the drill where we jumped under our desks and covered yeah. our heads because of the, uh, uh, the threat of nuclear uh, yeah. attack. And then I remember one day I was brushing my teeth and had the radio on to news that's how weird of a kid I was. I was probably what 14. Um, and I remember looking in the sink and seeing the water go down the drain and thinking that, you know, that's what was happening to uh, 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 the Soviet union and all that. And it, it's, it, you're right. People who are younger don't realize what a big change uh, that was. So why, why did Marxism, uh, what was it about it that why did so many other people outside the, you know, the vanguard of Lenin and all that, why did other people, uh, especially in the West, uh, uh, latch onto that again? And why is it still a, th a thing uh, even well, after? Let's, yeah. Let, let, let's, let's take it, I think, at the best estimate. Okay. Because it, it's always, I think, a temptation to look at your, your opponents, your intellectual opponents and attribute uh, bad motives to them. But as I kind of indicated already when talking about Marx, there's a certain kind of glamour and attraction to the view that we can create a society in which we can all live happily together without grasping, without uh, without discriminating against people, without terrorizing over them, without wars and so on. I mean, that's that is a noble vision. Yeah. That that is a, that is a good thing. If we could bring that about that would be a good thing. And I think that many people uh, in the 20th century, in the early part of the 20th century, were persuaded that this was possible mm -hmm. and that what we were seeing in the Soviet Union was the beginnings of an experiment in social reconstruction to bring about this kind of heaven on earth. And however excusable that might have been, in the early 20th century. Okay. It's a little less excusable in the early 21st century, mm -hmm. where we saw the consequences of that particular enterprise. Not only did it not produce, as it were, the Garden of Eden again, it produced the horror of prison camps and gulags and exile to Siberia and starvation of the kulaks and the great leap forward and the Kampuchea and stuff we've seen you would think looking at all of this right that you would think no that's not the way to go your end your goal is eminently desirable but as conservatives we know that the best way forward is incremental of course any society can be better than it is but the temptation, as it were, to wipe it out and start from scratch with some kind of blueprint is a really bad idea. And not only their view was that you could create society um, all anew, but that individuals would also be like new, right? That, that oh, yeah. the, the human nature, nature would be changed. Oh, yeah. Human nature would be changed. You'd, you'd, you'd go out in the morning and you do a little bit of manual labor and then you'd read some highly intellectual book in the afternoon and then you'd go to a concert in the evening and we'd have people flourishing on all of these levels and they're going, yeah, great idea. Terrific. Wonderful. Yeah. 
and uh, nowhere did it happen. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it's it's uh, tragic that you know a view that, and I've talked to a couple of Marxists uh, that still believe that that's the way to you know they hear I'm uh, an anarcho-capitalist and they say, oh, you're just you're hopeless. It can never happen that way. We have to go the Marxist way, and then the state will will wither away. Wither away, yes. Yeah. Let's talk about anarchism. I know Michael Malice just released a book, I think called The Anarchist Handbook, which is, I think, a collection of different anarchist uh, writings from across the spectrum uh, of anarchism. And I kind of see, you know, the Marxists, uh, the ANCOMs at, at one end and the, uh, um, uh, the ANCAPs at, at the other side of that. Talk about the idea uh, of anarchism and why our, I, I don't know if you're, uh, a, a, an, an ANCAP, but, uh, why, uh, that I would imagine that's, if it's not your view, it'd be the closest anarchist view to yours. What makes that different? And, and, uh, where do all the other anarchists kind of get it wrong? Okay. I, I, I probably would be describable as an anarchist. I don't use that term though for, for rhetorical reasons. I think it invites problems we don't need, but I don't have a problem with the reality behind it. But anyway, let's come back to the whole notion of anarchism. So as I, as I I think I point out at the start of my book on libertarian anarchy, there are two senses of this term. Anarchy is sometimes used to mean disorder, chaos. And if that's what anarchism is, I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> okay, Who in their right minds wants to live in a situation of disorder and chaos? It makes no sense. So what then, if it's not that, what is anarchy? Anarchy is the idea that there is nothing written in the stars that says that any one person has the right to leaving aside now, obviously, those who are legally incompetent, right? But among adults, that no one has the right, as it were, to order the comings and goings of any other individual, except as part of an agreement. That's what it means. Okay, so we're for freedom. We're against compulsion. We are not against order. We are not against association. We are not against agreements, even agreements that are binding. Okay? In fact, you can't make those agreements unless you are free to do so, right? So anarchy in the sense in which I think we both use it is about a situation in which the order that produces human flourishing, which is probably multiple, okay, comes about through the association of individuals and their agreements and, and therefore is emergent. It comes from the ground up. It doesn't come from the top down. It doesn't mean that we all have to go and live in the woods and shoot bears. <laughs> okay. I don't want to do that. I'm a city dweller. Okay, I like a good whiff of carbon monoxide in the morning to get me started. <laughs> okay, uh, So, yes, that's what we're talking about. So the issue here is how we order our society. And anarchism basically says we do it by agreement from the ground up. And therefore, if we make an agreement, for example, you and I could get to, me, you and I and others, we might form a Christian community. And we would have like, I don't know, 200 houses, and we would set up an agreement and we could have uh, restrictive covenants about what could and couldn't be done. And people would sign up to them and they would agree and they would live according to that. That's perfectly in order. Down the road, you could have, oh, I don't know, the leftist group are doing their stuff, whatever they want, want to do it. And good, good luck to them. Off you go. Okay. So when we talk about anarchism, we're not talking about a situation which everybody thinks alike about everything. In fact, it would be a situation where people think differently 
on many issues, but alike in the sense of leaving other people to get on with their lives and not forcing them or coercing them. Okay, except in terms in restricting their their violation of the zero of the zero aggression principle. All right, that's part of my answer to your question. Okay, sorry, I forgot what your question was again. You might want to ask me. Just kind of the uh, the spectrum of anarchism. Oh yes, and what other anarchists who claim to be anarchists, uh, in, in my opinion, a lot of what they uh, advocate would is the state or would result in the state? Are there any other anarchists that uh, strains of thought that, that you think w could be properly called anarchism in the way that you just described it? Well, on the negative side of what anarchism rejects, all anarchists are anarchists, all right, including left anarchists. We're all rejecting that. Now, some, some anarchists are so anarchic as to reject anything at all that savors of what they think of dominance. In fact, I think it was in the 1960s that when Noam Chomsky came to give a lecture in Paris, some of the students refused to go along on the grounds that this was a form of domination. <laughs> I'm thinking, what? There's like, nobody's twisting your arm to go, right? What the hell? So it, you get you get really kind of extreme forms of it and so on. But I would think most anarchists, in terms of their rejection of the kind of God-given right of any group or person to to order other people around and to enforce that through violence or coercion. In rejecting that, we're all on the same page. The question is, what do you do in other circumstances? And the real issue has to do with property, right? And almost all of the anarchists in various ways, whether you're talking about Proudhon or whether you're talking about Bakunin or Kropotkin or any of the later ones, Emma Goodman, uh, what's her name? Yes, I think I got her name correct. Gold, Emma Goldman. Goldman, beg your pardon, yeah. And others, uh, up to even more recent people, all have views which involve somehow dissolving people's right to property and trying to make it work in ways which don't allow anybody, as it were, to have essentially control of private property. Now, again, I can understand. I can understand there there are issues with private property, and you know we see all of this. And but nonetheless, I've never seen a satisfactory account of how this is supposed to work in a way which doesn't morph in the end into some kind of state. Yeah. Right? Uh, the stories have been told. And but but the more I think about it, how do you give effect to this? For example, suppose there's to be a division of existing property. So we take it away from everybody who's got it right now. We look at everybody who's there, and then we divide it up equally. Okay, so far so good. Well, who does this? <laughs> how is it done? And what happens after time when inevitably some people are feckless? and lose their property or won't control it and other people gain. So what happens? Do we redistribute again? Yeah. And if so, who does the redistributing? How is this done? I, I can't see any way in which anarchism doesn't, as it were, allow the elephant of the state back into the room yeah. in some form or another. It's not possible. Anarcho-capitalism, as a, as you describe it, and as I would probably subscribe to it in some form, is not prone to the same thing because we have a natural right to our property, right? Which allows us, as it were, to benefit from it and also, by the way, to benefit other people because we trade with others and benefit the poor 
as well. And so we can, and that doesn't mean we have to let, I used to give a provocative paper, by the way, which is called Let the Poor Starve. And the point of that was to address the question up front that all of these people had the suspicion that that people who think like us, if you like, are hard-hearted bastards who want everybody else to die as long as we're okay. And I would address those questions by having that title. So yeah, is it perfect? No, but the point is uh, we know that there is no perfect system. That is the fallacy of Marxism. It is the fallacy of, of the more romantic forms of left anarchism as well. There is no perfect system. Any system we have is less perfect. The thing to do is to try to remove the imperfections as best we can without coercion, by agreement, without violating any person's individual freedoms or their rights to property in so doing. That way, we get closer to where we want to be, but we never get exactly where we want to be until we get to an anarchic state completely. Right. Uh, we could probably spend another two and a half hours talking about Murray oh. Rothbard, and we're not going to do that. I, I, oh. we, I, I, I've got some work to do today, but I do want to ask this uh, this last question and then ask you about, about music before we say goodbye. Oh, so um, uh, Rothbard, uh, we all know and love him. Um, yes. Talk about Hoppe and uh, a lot of people, and I kind of agree that he uh, made some pretty um, – uh, uh, great contributions and kind of uh, has moved uh, anarcho-capitalism kind of forward a little bit from uh, Rothbard. And in particular, uh, you know, the title of this podcast, Decentralized Revolution, that, that Hoppe's ideas have um, uh, are kind of ideas that, that we're uh, trying to um, uh, push forward. So talk about that team, uh, uh, and they did work together. Uh, Hoppe studied under Rothbard. Uh, talk about how just their contributions to uh, libertarian thought. Whoa. All right. That's a great question to uh, to finish with. Well, first of all, Rothbard, uh, what can I say? A man of incredible intellectual fertility. No question about it. And energy. I mean, remarkable energy, just incredible. Uh, the amount he wrote, the four-volume history, uh, his two-volume history of economic thought, uh, I don't know how many other, 15, 20 other books and manuscripts still lying around, probably unedited in the Mises Institute. Staggering stuff, book reviews, and so on. The guy must have had his fingers permanently glued to a typewriter. That's the only thing I can think of. And when you think that he died at the age of 69, it's yeah. just absolutely remarkable. Was he perfect? No. Well, no, but I'm not perfect either. That might come as a shock to many people, but none of us is perfect in that sense. Uh, did he change his mind on some issues? Yes. Was he always right? Probably no. But all of that said, with all the imperfections that, that flesh is heir to, he took elements in economics coming from Mises and in politics coming from other sources, Boethi and so on, and kind of welded them together and obviously contributions from the from the Rand tradition as well, and kind of welded them together into what I think would be more or less mainstream uh, libertarian anarchy today. He is really the kind of father of it. Hoppe studying under him, coming from Germany and in, the, in that, uh, out of the, the tradition there from uh, Habermas, uh, brings brought a kind of conceptual rigor uh, that at times is probably lacking in Rothbard. I don't mean this is any really bad criticism. I'm just saying that, the, you know, when 
so so he he does that and he uh, in his works again advances the um the thinking on his but they're not the only one there are many many thinkers and uh, then the the setting up of the mises institute of course was a stroke of genius because that gave a habitation uh, as it were which a kind of focus on the locus for thinkers here where people could meet where they could come together i can i mean remember the first time i went in 2007 it was like dying and going to heaven i mean to be around all of these people uh, and not having to start from scratch and finding people uh, who who made me seem wimpish and <laughs> not radical enough was a novel experience, quite extraordinary. So yeah, and again, uh, like Rothbard, uh, I don't agree with everything uh, Hoppe says and writes, but he is there. Nobody can question the man's genius. Yeah. It's quite extraordinary. What uh, do you think of, think of the argumentation, the argumentation ethics? ethics? Oh, now that's a tricky one. I had a project at one stage to try and put this on a kind of as clear a conceptual foundation as possible. And in the end, I couldn't do it. It's a project. It's one of these things that sits in my drawers undone. I have about 50 type pages of notes and so on and so forth. I am the 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 engine which drives argumentation ethics is the form of argumentation known as self-refutation in a way, and it comes from the Kantian tradition through Habermas and so on, and I'm actually a big fan of that. I think that's correct. I, can, I think, for example, that you can you, you demonstrate the, the uh, correctness of free will by showing that nobody can argue against that position without actually making use of free will. Okay, so that kind of self-refutation uh, process, which is at the core of argumentation ethics, is, I think, correct. In the details, I'm not so sure, and that's why I had to kind of park that project. I'll probably never get around to it now. Somebody else can take on that job. But yeah, that was very exciting, and I and I still, every now and then, when I come across my notes and I read it, I kind of go, whoa, wow, and I get all excited again and think maybe I can do this. Um, but no, yeah. Uh, before we get to the, to the music, tell me what you are working on right now. What can we look for in the Ooh, next couple of years well, from now? Now this so uh, this is going to be a bit of a shock, I suppose, to to your listeners. I'm actually working on theology and philosophy, and I'm working. I'm reading around widely on the notion of the resurrection. Um, you might think, well, hasn't this been done to death? And <laughs> no, no pun intended. Uh, and the answer is, well, yes, from a certain perspective. But the way I want to think of it is this. Let me see if I can frame the kind of question that's moving me at the moment. Um, human beings are material entities, not only material entities, but we are body and soul. We think of it in different ways, but clearly you take up space, I take up space. I can be used as a projectile. Somebody could put me into a cannon and shoot me. I'm, I'm a big lump of physical stuff. Is my essence, is my core, is, it, is what I am essentially just a pile of nerve endings and bits of flesh? And I think the answer from a Christian perspective is no, there's something more. So then the question is, what, what's our function here? What are we doing on this earth? Okay, is it just a matter of happenstance? We're born, we live, we die. Is that it? Well, yes, in some sense, that happens to people. You know, you go to funerals, the person is no longer there in some sense. Do we continue in some way? Well, yes, if you believe the Christian story, the answer is yes. But the question is how? And then the question becomes, do we have any models for this? And the answer is, well, yes, we do. We have one. We only have one, and that's Jesus Christ. Right? 
the only person we know to have resurrected from the dead is Jesus Christ. Lazarus doesn't do it. Lazarus is resuscitated and others and so on. And there are very the post-resurrection appearances are very strange. Strange things happen. Christ is there, he's not there. He suddenly appears in their midst and so on. He's eating, he does, but he doesn't need to eat, or does he? Or what's the story? And here's the question. Sometimes the disciples don't recognize him. How can you not recognize somebody you've been with for the last three years? How does that happen? So what is then our eternal destiny? Is it to live? Most people have this idea. Most Christians have the idea, if they have any idea at all, that we go to heaven. We suddenly become, as it were, quasi-angelic. We go, we lift it up into the clouds, Hollywood-like. But you know, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says, actually, that the heaven comes down to us <laughs> in Revelation. And I believe, and this is what I'm investigating, that human beings are essentially embodied. We cannot be fully who we are unless we're embodied. We're not designed to be kind of low-class, low-rent angels. We're designed to be embodied creatures. And therefore, even if there's an intermediate period between our death and our resurrection, where we're not, we'll leave that to one side, that's another interesting question. In the fullness of time, we will be reunited with our bodies. Now, questions there about identity, how we get to be the same, how we get to be different. Is our body the same or different? What happens to change? What happens to our human desires, which are predicated in this life on our on rolling forward, on our appetites being satisfied and then arising again? All of these are complex questions that persons that have been dealt with to some extent, but no one that I know of has dealt with them all in a systematic and comprehensive manner that satisfies me. And that's the task I've set myself. It may never happen, but I'm going to give it a good try. Well, I hope it, well, does, I hope it does. And that whatever, and that whatever you write, you that, write that, that it uh, doesn't, doesn't uh, remain, in, remain that in that desk, but that, that it comes out when we get to <laughs> We shall see. We okay. Shall see. And as a form of saying goodbye, uh, Tell us uh, what kind of music did you play? Do you oh. still play music? And you didn't want to talk about it, but I got to ask. Oh, I'm a right, musician well, I mean, myself. This is this is really boring. I mean, I like I grew up in a household where, again, at times where the only music you had, we had some LPs, and we were unusual in our street and having LPs and something to play them on. Uh, you know, you, you obviously don't have streamed music, and we didn't have CDs or anything like this. So I was very lucky that my father was was loved music, and so I grew up in classical music. Um, I, I learned piano. I was sent to the local uh, school of music and learned it. My brother as well, and uh, and then in my teens, uh, my early teens, I fell in love with the French horn and I and I played that. I, I was quite good at that. That was one instrument I was reasonably proficient in. And then, but I mean, I I would I you know playing music for a living. I would play anything. I mean, I'd play Irish traditional music or I would play pop or whatever. It didn't matter. Whatever paid, whatever paid gig, I would do it. So was it on the French horn and what kind of paid gigs oh, did no, you get? No, no, no. I was going to say, no, I, I've never heard of a French no, horn player no, who, no, 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 who didn't no. make a living piano, from the Piano orchestra. or bass. I used to play piano or bass. Whatever. Okay. Like yeah, upright, upright bass? Very or? badly. Yeah. No, no, bass guitar. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, we'll maybe talk about that. Uh, uh, oh God, no, please, please never, let us never talk about this again. And if you want to take <laughs> that segment out of the recording, <laughs> you will do me a favor. Uh, I, 
I, I don't want to remember that time. Well, if we do talk about it, it will be off uh, off the podcast. <laughs> but uh, um, I, I I can't be uh, more grateful for all the time you've given me. Uh, you kind of left it open when I asked you at the beginning um, uh, how much time you had. And I hope uh, this hasn't been an imposition. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, we certainly love to have you on in, in the future. Uh, should uh, uh, an occasion arise for that. And, and I uh, just appreciate all your work and, and all your time here today. Aaron, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Dr. Casey for sharing so much of his time and wisdom. Uh, I'll have links to his works and uh, more over on the show notes page at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 54. Thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And thanks to everyone who subscribes to our email list and gives to Mises Pack at TakeHumanAction.com and to everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to Decentralized Revolution. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.